Hey guys, good evening. Hope you're all doing well. I'm just going to wait a couple of minutes, maybe a minute or two. Uh, let a bunch more people filter in here or not. We'll see what happens. And tell you all about what happened today at the hearing um, and give you a little bit of a rundown on that stuff. And just to give everybody a heads up on how I run my spaces. I don't have a set panel. Whoever wants to jump up here, ask questions, talk, say whatever they want to say, just raise your hand and I will bring you up to the stage to be a part of the conversation. Um, I'm happy to do that. I think it's the way we, we all learn. Donald Trump is and, going to do um, a Twitter anything space. That Donald I Trump answer, is I coming back to Twitter. Take guys. it. Um, I did a space earlier um, for subscribers that is going to be along the same vein. Um, so this case, um, and this isn't just my assessment, it's this assessment of, of many, many people, um, is the most important civil liberties case maybe, you know, in our lifetimes. Um, this case is about whether or not the federal government um, has the right to coerce private entities to censor American speech in the public square. Um, they're doing it covertly and overtly. And um, where is the First Amendment's boundaries? Where is the First Amendment's boundaries, if any? And th there are some limits on the First on, on freedom of speech, but very, very few. And um, so the case has been going on for a year. And I did a summary of it leading up to today. And um, if you haven't had a chance to read it, let me just throw it up in the nest real quick, just in case. But I, I am blown away by the fact that I think similarly to how Julie Kelly um, often says that she can't believe that more journalists aren't covering January 6th because it's true. Um, I can't believe that I was one. There were two other. Uh, there was a, another team of, of reporters. I don't know where from. I think there were local media in the courtroom today. But other than that, that's it. The New York Times wasn't there. The Washington Post wasn't there. Uh, you know, none of the none of these other outlets came to cover this case because it just confirms everything con uh, conservatives have been saying for years now. So I'm just going to get into it. Um, before I begin, anybody who thinks that they'll want to say something, raise your hand so I can bring you up now, and then you can interrupt me as I go through this if you'd like to. I'll just wait a second and see what people have to say, if anything. Don't be shy. I don't want to do a lecture. <laughs> All right, then, shy people. If you raise your hand as we're going on, that's fine, too. Um, there we go. We've got somebody with some guts. Okay. So, this hearing was so that the judge could hear oral arguments from both sides to make a decision on whether or not he wants to um, grant the motion for an injunction in this case. And what the injunction would do is basically stop the social media, the government and its affiliates like the Atlantic Council, the Stanford Internet Observatory, EIP, and the Virality Project, although they claim it's defunct, from 
being able to coerce, encourage, threaten, um, or otherwise work to provide information to social media companies about content moderation or who they should and shouldn't ban, censor, um, et cetera. And the way the hearing was set, it, the judge granted an hour for each side to do their arguments. And then the judge did a, about an hour and I would say two hours of questions where the judge had a whole ton of questions that he wanted to ask, mostly of the government who are the defendants in the case. And when I say plaintiffs, I mean Missouri, Louisiana, and a number of private plaintiffs um, that are on the case as well, like the Gateway Pundit, like Jill Hines, um, Dr. Bhattacharya, um, and Dr. I always say his name wrong, Kiriarty, um, who's a great speaker and really smart guy too. Um, so they're on the, the suit as well. And the lawsuit covers def several different fields of censorship and they have expanded their buckets of censorship since. It covers the Hunter Biden laptop, election integrity, COVID, vaccine hesitancy or vaccination. Um, now, gender issues, um, climate change, the banking industry, um, what else? Abortion, the withdrawal from you, uh, the withdrawal from Afghanistan, the war in Ukraine. These are all new buckets of censorship the government has added to their censorship <laughs> work toolkit since all of this stuff happened. So, the attorney that mainly argued, or the only attorney that argued on behalf of the plaintiffs, um, was brilliant. He was from Louisiana. And he started out his arguments the first hour with kind of like a timeline or, a, you know, a review. And he said, there have been efforts by senior federal officials to take over social media companies that have been systemic and systematic and started at least seven years ago and have radically expanded and then took two giant quantum leaps, one beginning in 2020 and one in 2021. And this very expansion that they've taken has shown that it won't stop on their own. This is what they were arguing. I took a bunch of notes. Um, they said absent court intervention as this trial continues or this case continues because it will go forward. Um, they say without the court intervening to stop this now, there will be irreparable harm to the plaintiffs and others. Um, and, and it won't stop. He, he called it the most egregious assault on the First Amendment in history. And I, I agree with him. And he said it kind of started, uh, the roots of this started in 1998 when Section 230 was put into law, which basically protects the platforms from content posted on platforms. Very basic overview of 230, if you don't know. It does, it, you can't hold these, these platforms liable for what it, their users publish. And they can make decisions... Um, you know, the problem is they, they step over the line and become publishers when they, they make uh, content decisions about topics that are allowed. It was really not meant for that, and it's been abused for years. So the conservative argument against 230 is that they're acting as publishers, and the Democrat argument against 230 is that they're not, um, they're not doing what they're supposed to under 230. So it's, it's a different swath. And in, in the middle of that are the, plaint are the, uh, the social media companies. 
Um, and we'll get into that a little bit more as we go on, but, um, he cited Justice Thomas on Section 230 and said that it basically creates a monopoly. If you want to control what people say, you know who you have to go to, the heads of these companies. You'll go and, hey, Brooke, you're here too. That's great. Um, you'll, you'll go to the heads of these companies and demand that they take things down because there are so few of them and they, they control such a wide swath of speech. Um, the other thing is that, you know, the government argues that they only – are policing the speech of foreigners uh, in terms of national security and, and whatever other, you know, interests of the United States arguments they mean. But through discovery in this case, uh, plaintiffs argued that CISA doesn't make any effort to attribute, um, you know, of attribution. So they don't make any effort to figure out if the person that's saying whatever they're recommending be suspended is actually American. They don't even try. They just they just swath everybody up together and throw a list at at the, the platforms and then just expect that the platforms will follow suit and do as they say. Um, they talk about a couple of different ways that this is accomplished. And, and one of the ways is by deception. So, for example, Fauci and Collins knew the lab leak theory was viable, but they lied to social media platforms saying that it wasn't viable, therefore inducing them to remove the content because it was false. But the whole time they knew it was true. And through discovery, we found their emails and correspondence that proved that. Same thing with the FBI engaging in the Hunter Biden laptop cover-up. Uh, cover the, the, he said in court, the, the FBI had the laptop before that they started going to social media companies and telling them that there was going to be a hack and leak operation likely centered around Hunter Biden and, you know, people should be on the lookout for it, which was a lie. I mean, they didn't have any intelligence and they testified to this in deposition. There was no intelligence that let them made them think that the Russians were going to be doing some, you know, hack and leak operations surrounding Hunter Biden. It was a lie they made up to be able to sway platforms to censor American speech during the election of 2020. Um, we also learned that CISA and the GEC set up the EIP. Um, if you guys watch the Twitter files, EIP comes up over and over and over again. They were organized by CISA and CISA basically said, you know, there are some things that we can't do as the American government. So in order to fill that gap, we're going to set up, CIS we're going to set up the EIP and we're going to have it funded because government agencies did fund the EIP. Taxpayer dollars went into an organization to silence you. Yes. Um, and so any claim that CISA had nothing to do with EIP is absolute nonsense. They, they were involved in it in a, in a very robust way from the beginning. Um, he also said something in his arguments as he went through this timeline and the buckets and things like that, that blew my mind. And if you're kind of a nerd like I am surrounding Spygate and stuff, he said that Covington and Burling which is the firm that represented General Michael Flynn to start off his case back during the Mueller investigation, was the firm that represented Yoel Roth when he testified in front of Congress. And I thought that that was super interesting. Um, Covington and Burling, I believe, if I'm not mistaken, Eric Holder is a partner there. Um, let's see. 
Oh, this was another good thing or interesting thing, I should say. They were tasked with expedited discovery, so they had to go to all the platforms and other witnesses and people and ask them for for discovery materials. And they went to Twitter, and they asked them to provide a list of everybody that was working with Twitter for this purpose of content management from the government. And Twitter returned a list of 11 names to them. And then after Elon Musk bought Twitter, they went back again and asked them to provide the names of all the people from the government that were working with them on content moderation. And Twitter replied with 83 names. So they originally gave 11 when it was the old guard. They gave 83 when the new guard took over. Not only were there 83, but 15 of those 83, as per plaintiffs, are high-level White House officials. So 15 of the 83 are people that are working inside of the White House at a high level right now. So you have direct White House involvement in the censorship of Americans with Twitter alone. Um, Plaintiff's attorney said, we are just looking at the tip of the censorship iceberg here. And he said that because it was limited expedited discovery. And even along the way, the judge had warned defendants. There will be much more of this. This is not it. This is limited in scope. But when the case goes, this is going to be broadened out to whole of government. And they're going to be subpoenaing goodness knows how many people. Um, So the fact that we have this much uh, evidence now with limited expedited discovery is kind of overwhelming. Um, He said there was a a multi-pronged, White House campaign. And it was basically three prongs, as he explained it. Public threats, which linked the demand, the ask of the social media companies with a threat. So a Saki or a Vivek Murthy at the the CD um, at the Surgeon General's office would say, there is rampant mistis and malinformation on the social media platforms. They really need to do more. And we're looking at robust antitrust legislation to make sure that, you know, this doesn't happen. Or we're looking at strict Section 230 interpretation, or we're looking to repeal Section 230 and hold these um, hold hold these platforms accountable. That was the first way. The second way was in hearings. So Congress would have hearings, would call in the the um, would call in the the CEOs of these companies, sit them down, berate them, threaten them in the hearings. You guys have all seen it. You know, ninety ninety nine percent of the time, it, it, even a hundred percent, it's it's the left, it's the Democrats saying you're not doing enough. How are you going to get misinformation off your platforms? What are you going to do? How are you going to do it? And demanding that they do more in hearings. And then the third prong was senior federal congressional officials and people from the HIPSI and the Senate Select Committee on Intelligence would go out to Silicon Valley, have meetings, and literally bring the legislation they were threatening to draft if said objectives were not met to those meetings in private. So any argument at this point for any rational human being that this was anything other than what it was is asinine. And the evidence is all there. This is not conjecture or hyperbole. It's all in black and white. Um, He saved 
He said that the, I'm sorry, he said that uh, Facebook basically outsourced their content moderation to the CDC during COVID. Um, they would literally go back to the CDC and say, oh, is this true? Is that true? Is this true? And the CDC would say that could, in you know, induce vaccine hesitancy. And this was never said at trial, but I'm saying to myself, who the hell is the government to care about whether or not somebody is vaccine hesitant or not? Um, that's like a blatant disruption of informed consent at, at a bare minimum. So it's just a completely improper role for the government to have to seek to sway opinion about whether or not people should want a vaccine. And the interesting thing about that is the solicitor general from Louisiana has a vaccine injured son. And she, in the interview I was blessed to be able to do after the hearing was over, made it a point to mention that her son suffered from myocarditis and was in the ICU for a week after his vaccination. And I said, I would argue they killed more people by censoring than they did the other way around. More people died by censoring information that was considered wrong think than the other way around. I don't think there's any argument there um, by anybody who knows what's really going on. Then they said that every objective indicator that they have shows that there's a firm commitment on the part of the government to consider engaging in censorship activity in perpetuity. And they also said that it was interesting because eight days before they filed their lawsuit, the disinformation governance board was announced. And he said what I've been saying about the disinformation governance board, if you've been reading my threads, he said the disinformation governance board wasn't some new idea. It was an engine for them to be able to continue to do what they were doing, but on a much broader scale with funding an organization and an air of officiality. They tried to spring up another bureaucracy within CISA so that would they would be able to run their censorship, quote, help desk, which is the thing that I've chose, chosen to call it, grab up all of the government agencies that are collecting and flooding platforms with these censorship demands, put them under one umbrella and handle it all from there. And because of the outrage and public pressure, they were forced to disband the disinformation governance board, which is great. But at the time I said, there's a reason why this doesn't matter. And the reason why it doesn't matter is because they're just going to keep doing it the way they were doing it before and just get more crafty. And then eight days later, after that was announced, they filed the lawsuit in, uh, in Missouri. So hold on one second. So before I go on to the government's arguments, because that was about 45 minutes, and there's something to be said when you're listening to a hearing, and I don't know if any of you guys were um, are law nerds like I am, but when you're listening to a hearing or oral arguments or trial or whatever, and you've got closing statements or opening statements, and the attorneys are reading their opening statements as prepared remarks, it really takes something away for me from their arguments, because you don't get the passion or the, the fire or the, you know, the comfort that somebody's knowledgeable in what they're talking about if they have to read from a piece of paper. And I'm going to pull it up because I keep forgetting how to pronounce it. Um, the attorney that argued for the plaintiffs was John Sauer, S-A-U-E-R. And he spoke fast for me. And I listened to everything on 2X, okay? 
the court reporter had to tell him to slow down a bunch of times. It didn't matter at the end of the day because he was on fire. He knew everything. He had a binder for the judge, which was all set up with different tabs and ways that he could look at the evidence that was being cited. Um, it, w- it, was really, it was really great the way he argued and the way he presented his case. The government, on the other hand, they were reading, they were stuttering, they were, um, two of the attorneys anyway, the last guy was pretty good, um, but the first two really were, were very unorganized and, and it was, it made it very hard to follow because it wasn't, it didn't flow right and um, I just, I just wasn't, wasn't able to follow it as easily. So let me stop there for now before I get into the government's arguments and see if anybody in the audience has any questions or in the, wants to speak or whatever before I get going with the second half. So raise your hand if you would like. I'll give it a, a 15 seconds. And if not, then we'll move on. Uh, hold on. Oh, awesome. Jill's here. Me, invite her to go. She's a plaintiff, by the way. And she's amazing. And she's so pretty. <laughs> uh, Jill, I gave you co-host invite if you want to co-host with me. Did she leave? No, she's a listener. There we go. I'm so glad you're here. Hey, Tracy. Thank you for your kind words. You're too sweet. <laughs> well, true. I didn't get to talk to you much today because we were kind of in a hubbub, but you're you're amazing and you're brave and I love you. And so I'm really glad you're here with me. <laughs> well, it was it was an absolute honor to get to meet you this afternoon. But I, and I want to reiterate what you just said about about John Sauer. Um, I've had this is the second time I've I've got to see him in action the first time I was in um, the room when he deposed Anthony Fauci last November. And he's just a beast. Um, as I, I kind of mentioned to you that, you know, during the, the deposition, he was, what happened off record was a lot more interesting in some instances than what happened on record. Uh, for example, the um, Anthony Fauci's attorney kept um, objecting, objecting, objecting at the very beginning. And when at one point he was objecting because the paperwork was out of order and John Sauer, he, you know, quickly said, uh, turn it off. <laughs> and he said, this is the order that you gave it to us in. We're going to go in the order that you gave it to us. And it was all yeah. so disorganized. <laughs> It, it, I wish I could have been a fly on the wall, honestly, because even the way the questions were asked, if you read the transcripts, you can feel yes. it. Um, you can feel it. I mean, and you got him in a, they got him in a perjury trap, what, 134 yes. times he perjured himself? Yes, yes, yes. It was, it was such a surreal experience to be in the room for that deposition. I'm thankful that I was there, but to see John Sauer and his team, the way they had it set up that afternoon during the deposition, he had, it was just like today. He had everything numbered and organized. When he got to a question, he pulled out 
the exhibit. He was ready to go. And there were that his team was behind him, just, you know, ready to hand him an exhibit whenever he called for it. And of course, my attorney general, I live in Louisiana. My attorney general was at the table, uh, Jeff Landry, with his Anthony Fauci, uh, the real Anthony Fauci book by Robert F. Kennedy Jr. Oh, <laughs> He had that on the table in front of him with all of his sticky notes sticking out of uh, the end of the book um, right in front of because he was right across the table from Anthony Fauci. Um, so anyway, but I just want to reiterate what you said that John Sauer is a phenomenal attorney. And of course, he's um, engaged me to be a plaintiff in Stamos as well. And um, your commentary on that one as well. Oh, well- that one is different in that it mm-hmm. is supposedly private entity, private entity. But it, it, it's, it's as we learned, obviously, through this case, it's, it's not quite so much. And they're not going to really be able to hide under that. Well, you know, the government's not going to be able to hide under discovery from them in that case. It, it's right. just going to be a very interesting. He's brilliant. He really is. Before we move on, Katie, you have a question. I'll get to that in one second. From your perspective, did I do a good job summarizing John's presentation. Yes, you did. Absolutely. And the governments as well. They did seem very discombobulated. The the Miss Snow that started, um, I don't know if it was nerves or what, but she did not seem uh, nearly as prepared as she needed to be. The second gentleman who was actually also at the, the Fauci deposition, he was a tad bit more polished. The third gentleman, Mr. Gardner or Ardner, I'm not sure exactly what his name was, but he seemed to be the team leader. Um, yep. And did have a little bit better grasp on on everything that was going on, but none of them compared. I don't think um, uh, Mr. Sauer even looked at his notes uh, when he, he, he didn't. Did. He knew the he knew the page numbers for everything. <laughs> yes, I was and blown the dates, away. And the dates for everything and what was said on what date. It, it's almost like he's um, got a you know a photographic memory and can remember every single context and comment for what day and to who it went to from what email. It was phenomenal. I I thought that, and we'll get into the government side in a second, but I thought that they attacked this much more from a legal theory perspective rather than a a fact set perspective. Um, They they were hammering down on the government, the the plaintiffs don't have standing for this, or this isn't going to work because it'll quelch government speech. And here's a case from five years ago at the Supreme Court where, and the cases, the judge blew me away too. I'm kind of skipping ahead, but (laughs) he, he knew all the cases. I mean, this was one of the most informed judges. Yes. (laughs) He knew this record, like the back of his hand. And he He joked about it the whole time. (laughs) He did. And like I told you, he's just a good old Southern boy. He has a very rich Southern accent. Um, You know, there's no airs about him at all. Um, but he knows his he knows the subject. And if you've read any of his um, rulings, you know, he has a brilliant legal mind as well. So it was really good. This is the first time I've seen him in person. And um, he and I were both um, uh, nominated and awarded like uh constitutional heroes of the crisis a couple of years ago. But this is the first time I've ever met him or seen him in action. And he is really pretty phenomenal. He, he is. I just wanted to hug him. And yes. I caught him. He was looking at me and I know he was looking at me because I was sitting, we were sitting right in front of him. And right. he, like, yeah. I was like nodding along with them. And like, I was like, basically it was, it was crazy. And I'm, I'm really seriously, honestly, guys trying to be as objective as possible. Yeah. Obviously, you know, 
that I, I am on the side of the plaintiffs here. There's no <laughs> doubt about that. Right. So it's, it's hard when you are so on the side of the plaintiffs to take yourself out of that and objectively um, decipher what happened. It's, it's, it's not an easy task. Um, Katie, mm-hmm. go ahead and ask your question before we move on to the next thing. And I'm so glad you're here, Jill. Seriously. I'm, I'm, thank you for joining. Sure. sure. Hi, you guys. Uh, thanks for doing this, Tracy. It sounds like you had a blast. <laughs> oh, yeah. It was, it was, you know, some points were tedious, but yeah, overall I did. Yes. <laughs> so I had a quick question. Um, you had mentioned that, like they, the government said they shut down the disinformation governance board and, and they won't be doing this anymore. <laughs> and uh, I've been reading a lot of Mike Benz and he's saying, I think it's Mike Benz that was saying there's a new, it's the foreign malign something governance board is a, a new thing that's really just in place of that other thing that they shut down. Yeah, I mean, they call it the Foreign Malign Governance Board. So they but can it's not really Foreign Malign. It's right, just... right. Well, so did they said... mention that at all when, they, when the government was saying, oh, we're not going to do this anymore? We're like, yeah, no, you're still doing it. They, they, didn't, they didn't mention it. Um, but there was a bunch of other stuff that they said to bolster the fact that they're still doing it. So yeah. we, can, we can, I mean, I'm sure with the amount of information they've got flooding them every minute, Jill... Yes. Foreign malign influence. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they, they mentioned that today, you know, several times. Oh. Well, no, 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 not that one specifically, but they, they kept referencing, you know, when Judge Doty would ask them, you know, does the, does the First Amendment cover this and this? And the, and the oh. um, gardener would say, maybe, if it wasn't like a foreign, a Russian. I can't yeah, wait well, to get there. I can't. Yeah, they're I'm naming it the foreign malign influence, but it's still us. Yeah. Yeah. It's not yeah, they're going to anything they, foreign. I, I know. And then, you know, the other thing that I've said the whole time too, Katie, is they are going to, um, even though they, the Restrict Act, the TikTok bill, Mm-hmm. is literally the constant the the legislative equivalent of what they're doing right now. That's what they tried to push through Congress because of this lawsuit. I am firmly in the in the, of the belief that because of this lawsuit, they literally propped up this Patriot Act for the internet um, right. in order to do what they're doing under legislative cover. Well, you know what too that restrict it has some like provision in it that lets them um, do it retroactively and that's what I think like going back and I think they're trying to cover their tracks on what they've already done on, on this case. Like, yeah, there's a yeah, retroactive no. aspect to it in the bill. Yeah. Yep. Wendy, Wendy, um, I believe who's on the, the space right now wrote an article about that, a really good article for Uncover DC. Um, so if you haven't seen it, I'll, um, Wendy, if you're not doing anything, you can tweet that underneath the space. And then I believe I can add it to the nest so that people can see it automatically. Um, William, you have a question. Go ahead. Yes, I want to thank you for putting this on. And, and uh, I just uh, was thinking, is it, may, is it possible that there may be a prosecution venue for violation of state constitutional rights? I came across an article uh, by a professor at UNC uh, and named, named Jeff Welty, and I can send that to you. But, That's actually uh, what this is, William. No. Okay, cool. Cool. I yeah. just, I didn't, I wasn't sure of all the details, but I, I saw this at the last minute. 
Yeah, they started this out as um, there, there are private plaintiffs like Jill here who started Health Freedom um, Louisiana. And there are also the states of Missouri and Louisiana under their state constitutions, just like you're saying. So, yeah. Okay, super great. Well, thank you. Yeah. Thank you for that. Thank yeah, you. sure thing. Of course. Um, guys, feel free, again, if you have questions or anything. Jill, do you have anything to add before I move on to the government's convoluted nonsense? Or? <laughs> no, no, no. And I'll turn off my mic so I don't interrupt you. If you want me to hop back on, I'm happy to. Oh, I do. I would love for you to, to powwow with me because you were there too. So Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'll sure, Dad. Okay. <laughs> yeah, I'll turn my mic off though so I, I don't interrupt any and I'll hop back on if I need to. Okay, fantastic. Okay, thanks. Um, sure. So, Okay. So the government got up there and they had three attorneys that argued. And as we talked about, first was Snow and she was very unprepared, stuttering, um, flipping through her, her notebook that was in front of her, obviously reading her arguments. And again, that takes away a lot. Like it was hard for me to follow, even though they were making the like the legal procedural, more procedural argument against the injunction. Um, it was hard for me to follow her argument because she wasn't very organized. So... The one place where I think they did make a good arg argument was the next attorney who was a little more polished than her, just like Jill said. But, um, okay. She basically said that the plaintiffs had taken all of this discovery and out of it, out of context quotes that distorted the actual evidence. And she basically said they misrepresented everything. Um, every example of Rob Flaherty contacting Facebook and berating them like a battered wife was taken out of context. That's what, that was what one of her arguments was. She also argued that the record doesn't show any first amendment violations. Um, it shows that in the face of challenges that the country's really never faced before, like a pandemic um, election interference in 2020, which we all know is nonsense and other, other incidents that we've had over the past couple of years, the government had exercised its prerogative to speak so the government is there basically arguing its right as an entity to speech as well, um, which it does have, by the way. Um, she also said none of what has happened is going to happen moving forward, that it's all hypothetical on the part of the plaintiffs that any of this is going to continue. Yeah, they acknowledge it did happen. They're not denying that it happened, but they're saying there's no evidence to show that this is continuing or will happen in the future. Um, and then they contradicted themselves later on, but we'll get to that. Um, she also had an interesting, weird argument to make about the declarations in the case. So, Jill, you can pipe up here if you want to. Um, yes. Yeah. So <laughs> she, go ahead. Go I'm ahead. sorry. No, no, no. Go ahead. So she, um, if I'm not mistaken, this is when she said that this happened in the past, that it's not gone. It's not continuing today. Like the censorship has has ended. It miraculously ended, I don't know, after the elections or something. Um, but she was implied that none of this was ongoing. But in my latest declaration, I just submitted a declaration maybe two weeks ago. And I have at least five instances of censorship or, you know, my post being deemed community standard violations or whatever. Um, probably at least five in the last month and a half. So that's in my latest declaration. And oddly enough, I got another community standard or some kind of violation 
just two days ago. <laughs> so it's very much ongoing. I don't know how they're going to explain away the fact that I shared a tweet of Robert F. Kennedy Jr. discussing Tucker Carlson's, you know, exit from uh, uh, Fox Hi. News. Yeah. <laughs> And the censorship, uh, the fact that he was talking about the vaccines and the pharmaceutical industry and was upset about it. Well, that was taken down. I got a community standard. I'm actually on restri uh, restricted uh, use on Facebook right now for 90 days. So <laughs> it's very much ongoing. And even if it wasn't ongoing, she was mm -hmm. arguing that your, your declarations in the case from the plaintiffs were stale, meaning they were old yes. and... They didn't. They didn't have any weight anymore. That they hadn't been refreshed. Which again, like like Jill just said, is a complete lie. Yeah. So it's really it's really weird to me. Like I, I said it on the private space before. It's almost like the government was gaslighting everybody, <laughs> it, At, including the judge, <laughs> including the judge who knows this record like the back of his hand. Like just yes. gaslighting them. It, they didn't even believe it themselves, and I can prove that to you with some of the stuff they said later. Like they. they it was it was the worst narcissistic gaslighting experience I've ever had. <laughs> yeah, except for like the last three years, but otherwise, yes. Whoa. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Ridiculous. So, it was. Um, so then they said the free speech clause doesn't preclude the government from making information available to, to platforms. So their argument is their entire argument is. We were just giving them information. It was their decision what they did with it, right? Mm -hmm. Right. That that's not true. Um, but that's their argument. Their argument is we're we can do this. This is our right to free speech to provide this information to platforms. And what plaintiffs are arguing is, if not for the government providing this information to platforms, no action would have been taken on it at all. Um, if not for them pointing out people who were making comments about the election, then nobody would have done anything with that information. If not for them making the recommendation and threatening alongside of it, they definitely wouldn't have done anything with it. Um, let's see. Then they blamed it on the World Health Organization. Did you hear that, Jill? That was that was to me the craziest thing. Well, the, the World Health Organization is saying it. And I know... <laughs> Today, there's a column by, um, um, who wrote it? Kyle, Kyle Becker right now that is going viral about PRET, which is the World Health Organization's plan for resilience and emerging threats or something like that. I, um, we wrote on that, Michelle and I wrote on that for Highwire several weeks ago. Um, and in that is a, an information component where the, where the World Health Organization is looking to censor information um, that could make it confusing to get official information during a health emergency. <laughs> so they basically said, well, the, the World Health Organization was saying blah, 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 blah. Like, that's not the point of, of any of it. Um, let's see. They don't deny anything. They just say that it wasn't enough of a threat to make companies take action. So even when they did, quote, coerce, it wasn't enough coercion to force the government to take action against that piece of content. Um, then on that. They also blamed third party fact checkers. Yep. Yep. They did the third party fact mm -hmm. checkers that Facebook and others employ to mm -hmm. fact check the mm -hmm. stuff. And then 
the second attorney got up there and <laughs> this was great because they misrepresented the Tucker Carlson fiasco and the judge perked up to correct them on their presentation of the record and what happened with Tucker. Um, he added context that they purposefully left out and forced that attorney to acknowledge that the context existed and stop that argument and move on. Did you catch that? I did Jill? not. No. <laughs> yeah. That was in the middle of the second attorney. Okay. Yep. Um, he, that guy was arguing the government's right to speech. Mm-hmm. And he was basically saying that the government has a right to speak and that nothing should be able to trump that right, which is basically the most upside down philosophy about the First Mm -hmm. Amendment. The government's right to speech does not outweigh that of a private citizen. And he has it. The funnel is is inverted. Mm -hmm. The the funnel's inverted. Um, he, He was basically arguing that them protecting us from harm or national security threats, or public health threats, or whatever, the balance of the harm errs on the side of the government rather than it erring on the side of free speech. It's more important. Them protecting us from ourselves is more important than the Mm -hmm. First Amendment. And that if they granted this injunction, then it would outweigh the harms that we could possibly face from them censoring or coercing or whatever. Um... The, the next thing that really got me, the third guy who you were talking about that is the most polished of them all. Yes. He, he, he was, they were all up talkers. Mm-hmm. Um, but he basically, I didn't even really write much down during his um, presentation other than he literally said if the injunction was granted, it could stop the government from policing mm-hmm. criminal activity such as a FARA violation. Now, this was a new one to me. His argument basically was if a United States citizen was saying something against national, like that could threaten national security, which at this point, the umbrella is the size of of a football field, that they could be criminally liable for FARA. And if they weren't able to talk to the social media companies about that American citizen, violating Farah, then they wouldn't be able to prosecute it. They have not prosecuted a Farah case. The first Farah case they have prosecuted in decades, ever almost, is General Flynn. So Farah was never a weapon until all of a sudden they needed it to be a political weapon. Um, I couldn't believe he pulled Farah out. That blew me away. Blew me away. So did you pick anything else out of their presentation, Jill, that I didn't mention? Uh, he, uh, he mentioned that they also discussed how it would impede their ability uh, in other areas of their speech, of the government's speech. For example, if they needed to discuss um, the next pandemic or any other, it, it, they turned it on themselves. Like if this preliminary injunction was imposed, it would it would hinder their speech in, in several ways. And I thought that was so ridiculous because John Sauer again um, listed the five verbs that they were asking for. I don't know if you can remember them all encouragement, coercion, but there were five verbs that they were asking for the government, for Judge Doty to induct on them. 
if you will, uh, in, in regards to the pre- preliminary injunction. It wasn't like a, a you know, a literal wall between the government and social media, just five verbs. They couldn't coerce, couldn't encourage, entice. I, ha- I have yeah. it. Yeah, I have it here. I have it on my thread. Um, hold on. But yeah, there are five verbs that are very specific mm-hmm. and chosen for very specific reasons. Even encourage. Um, he pulled encourage from um, a Supreme Court decision where they they uh, the court d- said that they could not encourage. <laughs> so he literally pulled it because they questioned that too. How are we not supposed to, you know, why why encourage? Or they questioned the word encourage. He goes, well, I got it from the Supreme Court case. And he, of course, cited the case. Sauer did. Yeah, it, it, here we go, wait. Demand, urge, pressure, or otherwise induce any platform to censor, suppress, deplatform, suspend, shadow ban, deboost, restrict access to content, or take any other adverse action against any speaker, content, or viewpoint expressed on social media. Mm-hmm. Um, that's the remedy that they're asking for in the third amended complaint for class action. Mm-hmm. Um, not in a temporary injunction, but it's similar. And you just got to sit and think for a second. Like, ultimately, at the end of the day, why, if the government is not doing anything that mm-hmm. they are accused of doing, why they would argue against this injunction in the first place? Exactly. <laughs> there, there's just no reason. Um, so that's the end of part two before we get to the amazing two-hour judge Q&A. Um, <laughs> It was amazing. It was. Does anybody have any questions on part part two before we move on to part three? No? No one? All right. Fine. Um, the judge started out by asking questions of the defendants. He said, I'm going to say a series of statements, and I want you to tell me whether or not they are protected speech under the First Amendment. The first statement that he said was, the COVID vaccines do not work. And then asked the government to tell him whether or not that was protected free speech. And the government said, depending on who says it, it could be protected, could be protected. And he kind of sat there and was like, I'm sorry, what? And then they were like, well, if a Russian propagandist says it on social media to try and influence Americans to think a certain way, then it's not protected. And the judge basically had to say, "Okay, assume that everybody asking this question, everybody saying these things are Americans. And Jill, tell me if I'm wrong. They would not. They would not say that these following statements were protected speech. Not once, even when he gave them the instance of his, okay, it's my clerk, my, my clerk here from, from Baskin, from Baskin, Louisiana. He's not Russian. He's May I ask a question? Yes. What, I, I, this is kind of a rhetorical question, but feel free to riff on it if you want. Whatever happened to that Supreme Court uh, justice or chief justice who said something with regard to the First Amendment of regarding Americans, of course, because I don't think it protects others. Um, Quote, uh, what type, excuse me, what part of no law don't you understand? 
I don't know what case that's from. Well, that's it, the case when, but he was, of course, quoting Congress shall make no law restricting freedom of speech. And he just simply asked the person arguing for restrictions on speech, what part of no law don't you understand? It's a great question. And they don't usually have a very good argument, to be honest. And they didn't today. The second thing that, that the judge asked is masks don't work. That was the second statement. Same rigmarole back and forth about Russian actors and nonsense and national security. The third one, the 2020 election was fraudulent. And then climate change is a hoax. And then he said, President Biden is responsible for inflation and high gas prices. So hearing him ask those questions just gives you an idea automatically of where his mindset is. He is based as hell, this judge. I mean, he is. He, he really he really is. <laughs> then he asked um, he asked them to basically expand on how a, a, a temporary injunction would avoid uh, how could it avoid a, the government speech problem? Like asking the plaintiff attorneys, like if I did rule on this, right, the way that you want me to, how would we handle government speech? Like, what if somebody from the White House got up on the podium and said? You know, the social media companies really need to do a better job of policing misinformation. Is that then actionable? Like, can we hold them in contempt for saying that? How do you get around that? And what are the limits? And it was kind of a gray area, Jill, right? Yes, I I think so. He's going to have to define this very carefully so that mm-hmm. it is not ripe as hell for appeal. Yeah. And. Yeah, I think the biggest argument the government has is how this injunction is worded so that it doesn't infringe on their right to speak in the public square. Right. Um, And he was asking very deliberate questions um, to, I think, to to frame it in the right way. Yes, he was. And, you know, he would ask his questions and he went on and on and on with them. And they were all brilliant Mm -hmm. and wonderful. And then he would be like, I I don't know how I'm going to rule, but, you know. (laughs) Yeah. Even even the solicitor from Louisiana said that she's pretty confident he's ruling in favor of this injunction. Like, right. I would be I would be gobsmacked given this. I just I I don't see it not happening. Um, then he said he asked them at one point. Tell me how many posts. Were taken down or were actionable by any of these entities that were of left-wing ideology. And what ensued after that was disgusting to everybody who cares about the Constitution. They basically said that the right are the only ones that spread disinformation, thereby they're disproportionately affected by the bans. Mm -hmm. That's what they said in court. And he was just gobsmacked by that. Like, really? And then... There was one point where they screwed themselves so badly. <laughs> you remember? It was so many times. Which one are you talking about? <laughs> chick, chick lawyer from the first red oh, yeah. um, argument was Miss No. You know, he said, hey, listen, there is an election coming <laughs> up in 2024. It's a hotly contested election. The country is very polarized. How can I be sure that with the 2024 election around the corner, you guys aren't going to just ramp this up again before the election. And they said that they were going to do it. Yeah. They, they told him they were. Like in plain mm-hmm. English. Mm-hmm. 
And he just sat there and then let them basically dig their hole by saying, what we're doing is fine. We're going to do it again. And then plaintiff's attorney said, I think they just conceded our entire point. (laughs) And the judge said, I was going to give them a chance to change what they just said. Mm -hmm. And then he looked at them again and said, you don't really mean that, do you? But they they basically doubled down on it. Mm -hmm. Am I wrong? No. When did he tell his Del Rio story? Um, With, do you remember the Del, his Del Rio story? Oh, about the immigration? Yes. It was yes. right before this question. You, yeah. you tell that part. Okay. So he, he tells the story about how he had, had gone down to Del Rio to help them uh, adjudicate cases. And he said he, he'd heard, um, you know, 200 cases, I think in about a 24 or 48 hour period. Um, and he, you know, everyone that came in front of him said, you know, that they would not do it again, that they would leave and not do it again. So he felt like he'd so- solved the immigration problem, yep. <laughs> the, yep. the law problem. And he goes, it sounds like you guys have to. <laughs> yeah. He, he said basically like, yeah, they tell me they're never going to do it again, but yeah. for some reason they keep on coming. <laughs> Yeah. I don't understand it. Like, basically, you can't trust a, a person in a position of, of looking for mercy to tell you the truth about what their real intentions are. Right, right, right. And he, he basically said that they were that they were doing the same thing. Um, they initially said that they, you know, they wouldn't. And I think she Snow said, um, how was it she put it, that there was no guarantee or some some kind of colloquial phrase like that we can't guarantee that we won't or something along those lines. And I was just like, Oh my gosh, I couldn't believe it. My mouth dropped open. Yes, I'm like, wow. I know. <laughs> like yeah. okay. Yeah. Um, yeah. And then there was another, um, there was another part that really just got me because here we are like, like Jill said, you know, fine Southern gentleman, good old yeah. Southern boy. Like, and he's pronouncing Sissa wrong. He's saying Sisa. Um, and then the government attorneys stand up and they're like, Sissa, Sissa. And he goes, oh, that's how you all say it there in DC. And it was just like a little swipe at them. Like you big shot DC lawyers. Yeah. It, it, it was just a little thing that you would catch if you were like really paying attention. Um, yeah. Oh yeah. I caught it. <laughs> and, and then he told him, he said, um, he said, when the government was explaining, when, when the, the plaintiffs were explaining, like, you know, CISA hired or brought in the EIP and stood up the EIP to be a stopgap between the rights that they could police as the government versus what they couldn't do, they needed a private entity to do. He asked a really good question of the plaintiffs. Why would CISA collaborate with an organization trying to get around the First Amendment? Exactly. Yeah. Why, why would you collaborate with this organization trying to subvert the First Amendment? Admittedly so. And, and he showed at that point a great understanding of the EIP's report that they put out. And that is a juggernaut, um, a juggernaut of a report. It, it's hundreds of pages long. And he read the entire thing. <laughs> he, he read it all, which is not typical most of the time, these federal judges who have a, a docket that's completely full will have their law clerks do a lot of that work for them. They're not always very well versed in what's going on in a case to that degree. But he said, I have read literally every piece of paper. And he kept on making jokes because all of the filings in this case are hundreds and hundreds of pages long. 
And he was like, I'm not even going to call them briefs. I can't call them briefs. They're not brief at all. They're hundreds of pages. So he ended up calling them novels by the end of the hearing. Yes. Which that was funny hard. because they're, it's true. They're very long. Yeah. I mean, there's always a page extension uh, m- motion every time. Um, so that was that was another thing. Then he, he told the story about the vaccines, um, which blew me away. He said, I never could understand why they were trying to get everybody to take these vaccines. And he said, they're wrong. You know, I got the vaccine. I got COVID three times. First, Mm -hmm. they said that the vaccine was 100% effective. Then they said it was 90% effective. Then they said it was 80% effective. And he's like, and why did, you know, they tell us all we had a mask and socially distance, but they had just told us weeks prior that that was not not necessary and masks don't work. But now all of a sudden, everybody has to mask. Um, He said, I just, I never could understand why they were so forcefully trying to get everybody to take the shot. Jill, do you want to add to that? No, I thought it was very, I'm glad he mentioned that too. I mean, he's, it it doesn't make him sound um, like he was, um, uh, what's the right word? Because I don't want to use the term anti-vaxxer or anything like that. I I, I hate that word, but it it just makes him think that, makes me think that he was um, not opposed to it necessarily, that he may have listened to health experts and come to the conclusion that, you know, they were not being honest. He actually said something to that point. Um, He said, this is the quote I wrote down from him, paraphrasing some, I'm sure I didn't get it exact. Mm -hmm. I never understood why the government was so hell bent with everyone taking the vaccine and masking. It went downhill from there. Mm -hmm. Why was the government so keen on making everyone take the shot and not listening to any alternative views? I don't understand why they would say it's my way or no way. That was his, basically his quote. Mm-hmm. Um, he also, in the middle of this hearing, in, he said, has anyone ever read uh, Orwell 1984? <laughs> and then he said, who is the Ministry of Truth? Mm-hmm. And he said, it, it applies here. Mm-hmm. The whole purpose of the First Amendment is that government can't tell us what is true or false. Here, they're asking the government what is true or false, meaning the CDC, etc., he said, disinformation seems to be what the government says it is. Now, if this is the judge, okay? This is the judge. You tell me if you're a plaintiff, if you're happy or if you're sad about the judge saying that in the middle of your hearing. Oh, I was thrilled. <laughs> yes. I mean, <laughs> he, he just gets it. Mm-hmm. Just gets it. Um, then he asked... Can you guys on the plaintiff side please define misinformation for me? Define it. They could they they couldn't. They couldn't define it. They couldn't define it. They said there's no government wise there's no government wide misinformation definition. CISA has their own definitions of mis dis and malinformation. Um but there's no government wide definition that that they could give. Um also he brought up cognitive infrastructure, which made me sing like I was twinkle toes because he basically wanted them to back out of it. And they did to some extent. But he said the director of CISA is saying that people's cognitive thoughts, that's brain stuff. That's what they think. That's their thoughts is part of the United States government infrastructure. 
Can you please clarify whether or not CISA is taking the position that your thoughts are part of their infrastructure? And they said there is nothing in the charter or the, you know, reg regulations at CISA that say that they can police infrastructure or thoughts. But clearly they're doing that every day. Um, he also said, just like I did, that he was pretty surprised at how social media companies fought back until they couldn't anymore. And he, he brought up several examples from the record where they said, you know, this doesn't violate our terms. This doesn't violate our terms. This doesn't violate our terms. And then finally they were hit with a cudgel and they acquiesced due to the overwhelming, I mean, just Flaherty on his own was wildly abusive to these companies. Like I was stunned at how, like he basically, he said in these words, I thought that all these social media companies were all ideologically to the left. They were left leaning. They agreed with, you know, what the government was doing, but they were averse to censoring and they, they were averse to censoring, believe it or not. And that brings up the argument again, if it weren't for the government taking action to use the full resources of the government to flag people like Jill and me and all of you out there and say, this is what you need to look at, take action on this. And then if action wasn't taken a week later, can we please have an update on what you're doing with these accounts, please? And then, you know, a week later, can you please give us an update on these? Then they would never have taken action on them to begin with. Um, the judge said, I don't know how anyone could read these emails and think the government was not putting pressure on the social media companies. He also said, what was wrong with the Great Barrington Declaration? He's like, why was that something that the government was so averse to? He's like, the way I read it, it was just a bunch of doctors and scientists saying that there's a different way to approach this virus. Like, we don't need to lock everybody but the risk averse down. The risk averse can stay quarantined and the rest of us can go about our lives. What was wrong with that? And again, the government was flat footed on it and couldn't really come up with anything to, to answer that question. They, they skirted around it. Um, and then what else do I have? Then he asked a bunch of questions about the class portion of this because there's a motion in the amended complaint to change this to a class action. And then he said, how do you want this injunction to be? Should it be just the states of Missouri, Louisiana and the plaintiffs, the, the private plaintiffs, or should it be you know, the whole country and uh, plaintiff's attorney that was arguing said it's not going to be effective if it's just Louisiana and Missouri and the plaintiffs, because then what's stopping them from doing the same thing to a, a plaintiff from, from a citizen from Arizona or whatever. And it should be treated the same way these immigration orders are being treated right now at the district court level. Um, so did I miss anything, Jill? No, you were very thorough, Tracy. I think you got it all. Awesome. So that was the, then the end. He ended the hearing um, on a on, you know laughing the whole way. It was it was really it was really just a, a great experience to see. And I said to Jill, we were sitting there. She had come sit next to me for a little while, and I said, we shouldn't be excited about this, right? It it's really scary and telling that we're in a place right now where judges who are doing the right thing mm -hmm. administering justice 
it, it's so rare that we're having a party over a judge who's honest. Right. So now we wait. The transcript won't be available for several weeks because the court reporter is going on vacation, I guess. Oh, I didn't catch that. <laughs> yeah, he had said in the beginning, if you need this transcript, you're not going to be able to get it for three weeks or so. Okay. Um, which, it, once the transcript's available to um, counsel, the public still can't have access to it for another, I want to say, 60 or 90 days unless they purchase it directly from the reporter, which is very expensive. But mm-hmm. when it comes out, all of you, should read it like a book. Yes. And, and it's entertaining enough to be read as a book, honestly. Um, and then I got the interview um, and Jill was in there too. We sat and talked to um, the solicitor generals from Louisiana and Missouri. Um, Louisiana, she is Elizabeth Merle and she's running for attorney general there in mm-hmm. Louisiana. And as I said in the beginning, her son is vaccine injured. Mm-hmm. Um, and she's very open about that. And mm-hmm. Josh Devine was the solicitor general from Missouri, and he's a young, younger guy, and he's just sharp as a tack, too. He is. Um, yeah, so they were great to talk to, and I'll release that interview. I just have to transcribe it and clean it up. Um, unless you have anything that you want to add, Jill, about your experience, which I'm sure everyone would want to know. <laughs> Uh, no, I don't know that there uh, is Tracy other than, you know, um, I just think the world of Liz Mural. she's the one that invited me to be, to write the declaration initially last May. Um, I think she'd heard my testimony. Of course, we've been, we've become friends um, since we were actually texting the day that her son was in the emergency room with myocarditis. And she was telling me that the ER doctors there were saying that it could not be associated with the vaccines. And we had just gotten a a health report notice from our Louisiana Department of Health saying to be on the lookout for this, to be on the lookout for myocarditis following vaccination. So I was able to to forward that to her. And so we have become friends over the uh, the last several years. And I think she heard me testify because we had a bill in front of our legislator, legislature in 2021, it was a, um, a free a, a social media free speech bill, and I had discussed how after a community standard um, hit on one of our social media accounts, our analytics showed that we went from a reach of about 1.4 million over a month's time to just like nothing. And so uh, I guess she'd heard me uh, testify in regards to that bill, so she approached us about writing a declaration for it. And um, so the rest is history. It's still extremely surreal to be a plaintiff in this case, because like you said, I think it's pretty, it's historical um, what they have done. And when I had an opportunity to discuss with a reporter after the, um, the court hearing today, um, this has a human cost to it, not just the fact that I was censored in my speech and, you know, our speech was suppressed, but literally people have died because in- information was withheld, intentionally withheld from them. Um, wrong information, um, as they discussed today, that it was deceptive information that was presented to the public in regards to, for example, the, the lab leak. 
Um, and it was all intentional. So th- it's not just, I mean, not just, I'm using air quotes here, a free speech issue. This literally cost people their lives. So um, it is a historic case. And I have a feeling that, ju- feeling that Judge Doty um, is going to rule in our favor. And hopefully sometime in the future, there will be some criminal accountability to these actors, these government actors that played a role in censorship. There, um, you know, I, I agree with everything that you just said, and it breaks my heart. It, mm-hmm. it breaks my heart because, you know, they're up there talking about public health. And I'm like, you guys yeah. are killing people every single damn day and you know it. Yep. They know it. Silence. You're going to be able to speak in just a second. Um, and and it, it, it bugs me. And then, you know, there are very few things that I jump up and down this loudly and this long with. <laughs> um, and I, I just, it, I'm blown away by, we have a, a, a unprecedented case in front of the court right now with a judge who, you know, they, they, what I was trying to say before I got a little distracted just there was the class action is so important and the government is fighting against that with everything it has. And the reason why it's important is because then people like me on the surface level stuff that that the case is is regarding is the First Amendment. I don't go around crying about my censorship every day because, you know, I'm kind of the type of person that's just not that you're crying about it. But a lot of people like, are like I'm censored, I'm censored. When I got banned from everything, I just said, I have to figure out another way to get information to people. And being miserable about this right now is not the way that I'm going to be effective. So, hey, Tracy, banned- do you mind if I cut in for one second? So sorry to interrupt. It's just like, I, I really, I really felt what I picked up what you were putting down there about the censorship um, and how they're just always trying to silence our voices. It's disgusting. Yeah, it is. It is disgusting. Um, And the point that I'm getting to is that I suffered a financial impact from this. I suffered a reputational impact from it. I mean, you know, I can't there's nowhere I can go to get my reputation, quote, back after the slander that the the legacy media used my suspension for. I'll be able to sue the government if the class suit is successful for for punitive. That's that's the. Everybody who had suffered some sort of harm from this will be able to use the class verdict as a punitive means to get some relief for that harm. Um, Go ahead, Silence. First of all, I just want to thank you, Tracy and Jill, so much for this summary. It's just incredible. And for being there on behalf of all of us, because this has affected all of of us. So, um, and I came up. Uh, Tracy, because you mentioned that it will read like a book. Um, you are such a great writer. You should write the book about this. I mean, you <laughs> did such a fantastic job of telling the story. I could just see this this book and the screenplay and everything, you know, the drama of all of it playing out. And so there you go. There's a good way for you to make some money back. <laughs> Thank what you. they stole from you. <laughs> Thank you, love. That's sweet. That's really kind. I, yeah, I, I've had a couple books on my desk that just I just never even started. I'm like, I'm going to do this. No, I'm going to do no. But it, it's really it, 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 like, like the way I read the Jen Psaki testimony um, in front of the court in Virginia. It was it was television worthy. This entire case is television television worthy, in my opinion. Um, 
Does everybody else, does anybody else want to come up and ask a question? If so, just request to speak. And if you have a question, ask it. Otherwise, I think I'm done. I'm not one of those people that holds a space for 70 hours for no reason. So I, I vomited out everything I needed to about today. I'm going to write a column, obviously. I'm going to transcribe the interview and hopefully have all that stuff out by Monday, Tuesday. Um, go ahead, Silence. you have a question or you want to say something? Yeah, I mean, you guys have talked about this, but um, we know, so many of us know firsthand, the lives that have been lost as a result of the censorship, those from the um, having the immediate reactions, you know, from the vaccine, like myself, who have just suffered through all of this. And, and I, obviously, by my name, I've been extremely censored. And even Maddie DeGarry, if her story got out, you know, for participation in the trial and the, her adverse reaction to that, you know, maybe other parents would have hesitated to get their children vaccinated. Take take Ernest, you know, and Ernesto, who Maddie was January 20th, 21, when she had the vaccine. If that information had gotten out, Ernesto died from the vaccine in April 2021. So the lives that have been lost as a result of the censorship in the human cost is just astronomical. Anyway, God bless them all. And thank you for fighting for us. We have to keep fighting. Anybody who says that this needs to be, you know, done with over, um, no way. No, no way. This has to continue until there's, there's vindicate, there's, there's justice for the lives lost, for the injuries had, for all of it. So, um, yeah, uh, if you have a question and you just got brought up to the speaker panel, just raise your hand. Go ahead, Adam. Well, I'm just going to make a quick comment because I filibustered the subscriber-only space. Um, I hope one of the plaintiff's attorneys just at some point, if they haven't already done it, I know the government, it, it, we're making arguments, should the government be in the business of policing what is and is not disinformation? The First Amendment exists to protect speech the government considers disinformation. That's the entire point of it. Mm -hmm. So I, I, I just hope at some point somebody makes that point. They, they actually did. Um he made the point that even if whatever anybody was saying was wrong or you really didn't like it, that the First Amendment protects people's right to say those things. Um, but you're right. It, it can be expanded on a lot more. And it's, it's a core tenant of the 1A. It certainly is, Adam. Um, Kingmaker, go ahead. Yes, uh, you guys have been doing an awesome job. I have a couple of questions. Uh, one, it, this is a motion for preliminary injunction, it can be made permanent by agreement of the parties. Was there any discussion today about that happening? No. So what that means is uh, the judge, even if the plaintiffs win and get their preliminary injunction, there still leaves a case pending before this judge in this court for a permanent injunction, which may require a full-blown trial. Yes. Uh, uh, but in the meantime, the uh, losing party can appeal. Uh, yes, uh, yes. 
A hundred percent. And and you know what? The interesting thing about that was the government, not interesting, but the government kept on bringing this up over and over and over again. They kept on saying that, that a temporary injunction is meant to preserve the status quo, which, which it is. And they were making the argument that technically, if they were to preserve the status quo in this case, the plaintiffs would still be harmed, quote, because the status quo is them doing everything that they're doing right now. Um, that argument wasn't well taken by the judge, um, and I don't think that it made an impact at all, actually. But yeah, it, it they they are definitely they asked for a seven day stay should the judge rule in favor of the plaintiffs so that they can appeal to the Fifth Circuit. And I made the the point again: the Fifth Circuit has recently been involved in an egregious um, assault, if for, for lack of a better word, when a justice was supposed to speak at Stanford on these very issues and was accosted by the leftist students at Stanford and wasn't able to make that presentation. And so I just wonder how the Fifth Circuit's feeling now that they've barred Stanford law clerks from clerking for them about the issues in this case. Um, did you have another question, though? One more. Uh, one thing that's been worrying me is uh, are the revelations that have come out in the more recent... Uh, Twitter files describing this vast network of censorship uh, through government grants, NGOs, uh, working directly and indirectly with the government, government money funding these third-party entities. Did any of that come up today? Oh, yes, in detail. In detail, yes. They talked about the EIP, the Stanford Internet Observatory, Atlantic Council, the Virality Project, yes, at length, and, and very, very detailed about the involvement of CISA in the founding of these organizations, what their purposes were, how they were funded, where the money came from, because the government kept on trying to say CISA had nothing to do with, with the EIP at all. And, and that's clearly, clearly false as per the record in this case. Um, so, yeah, they absolutely did. Mm hmm. And I noticed Gateway Pundits in here, also plaintiffs on this lawsuit, by the way. So, so what that means is everybody should crank out their antenna to watch carefully for the wording of the preliminary injunction that the court is asked to and ultimately issues. Will it be broad enough to bring that sort of thing to halt? Uh, it, you're talking about a lot of money being passed around by taxpayer money uh, that the government is passing out to entities engaged in censorship. And I can fathom a very broad, broadly worded, worded um, injunction that would bring that to a absolute halt. Uh, that's what you should be watching for. And then since I believe you're an attorney, I have a question for you. Um, would that broadness make this injunction more ripe for appeal, given that it's so broad? Or would the broadness be more impervious to appeal because of the web and its size? The, it, it's going to be appealed regardless the fact that they've asked for a stay, they've they've told they've signaled the court that uh, when you rule against this, we will appeal. Uh, 
Yep. Uh, and they just want the injunction stayed in the interim. Uh, I doubt that the district court will do that. They'll have to go to the Fifth Circuit and ask for the appellate court to stay it. Uh, it's in the appellate court's discretion to do it or not. The breadth of the injunction will, is going to be probably one of the main issues on appeal. And I can't speculate as to how broad the court can make it without being reversed. Uh, he's, he's got enough in the record right now to issue a preliminary injunction. Uh, the, issue, the big issue is how broad can it be? Uh, and that's going to be up to the judge as to whether he thinks the plaintiffs have made a case that it needs to be extremely broad or whether he's going to be uh, take a half measure and this, and maybe decide the broader issues at the permanent injunction stage. Okay. Awesome. Thank you for that. Good stuff. Silence. Go ahead. Yeah. So certainly this won't, no matter what happens, I mean, I think we'll win in the end, but will not be the end of the censoring once the WHO amendments, international health regulations amendments kick in um, because they are expanding their role in uh, censoring what they determine to be misinformation. So if what the government is doing now will just be taken over by the WHO and its partnering organization, which they already do, you know, the Facebook Probably, hopefully not Twitter, but you know Facebook, YouTube, and all of that. So I think that is already in play right now. So uh, I, I I agree with you. It's going to be an ever an everlasting battle. But I was thinking about this yesterday, and then Jeffrey um, and Bruce, you guys can go. I was thinking about the fact that we have been under this this tangled web of evil in terms of our speech for years. And yet we all know what the hell the deal is. Somehow we've been able to inform and educate and wake up a mass of people that never would have known any of this otherwise. So we're prevailing somehow, even in the face of this absolutely ridiculous boot that is standing on our neck, um, which is amazing. Go ahead, Jeffrey. Hi, Tracy. Can you hear me? I do. Wow, uh, been a while since we talked. I uh, hope you're doing great. And um, congratulations on this wonderful presentation, by the way. I just had a few, uh, one specific question for you and a few thoughts. Sure. Um, uh, first of all, as former CEO of a 40 million member social network that traded on NASDAQ for 10 years from the standpoint of interacting with the government with censorship issues, this is a fascinating case. But second of all, as you know, uh, or I think you know, um, I have been litigating uh, in both federal and state court myself for about six years now against Janet Napolitano's uh, inner circle. She's the former DHS director, actually the most active and influential former DHS director over uh, the current Biden administration. Um, and I've got a uh, ton of discovery. I mean, thousands and thousands of pages after six years of fighting back and forth with this very, very aggressive group um, that uh, has some really interesting stuff in it in terms of uh, how they interact uh, through Alejandro Mayorkas's 
administration still, even though they're not in office. He's their creation, by the way. Napolitano built uh, or created Alejandro Mayorkas. He's like their Frankenstein. Um, but anyways, what I was going to ask you specifically is uh, you, I have not been following this case as closely as you have, although I'm, I'm well aware you have been uh, doing an excellent job covering it. You mentioned that the current stage of discovery is some kind of expedited preliminary discovery. I was going to ask you about the court calendar and uh, what's anticipated in terms of where it goes next specifically with regards to discovery. Um, I've wondered if at some point I may end up intervening in this case with, with some of the evidence we have from other federal court litigation. You know, wouldn't you wouldn't be the first person to file to intervene. Um, Robert F. Kennedy Jr. has filed to intervene as well. Um, there have been one or two other people um, who've done it. Um, so it wouldn't be out of the norm for the judge to see it on this case. Um, and in terms of the calendar, this case is moving forward. Um, it'll it'll really just this has been kind of hanging out there on the docket for like a year um, just obfuscation after obfuscation after delay after delay. And the government had a motion to dismiss and then they withdrew it and then they filed another one and then they, they hemmed it hot on that. So I think after this ruling, the judge will set some or ask for some sort of calendar um, for the rest of it. Um, but we and there's also a ruling that needs to be had on the the amended complaint that's before him now. So there's a couple more steps before a discovery calendar, I think, is entered. Um, and thank you for your kind words. And I know you've been fighting the good fight out there. But um, I would love I'm sure that that plaintiff's attorneys would love to get their hands on some of what you've had in your possession. So that would be awesome. The more information, yeah, the better. I'm pretty sure I'm the only one out there uh, doing actual federal court litigation on this topic. Um, that is the topic of uh, Janet Napolitano, who's so tied into Biden, who runs her group, uh, which I just said, runs Alejandro Mayorkas by proxy, which you may or may not know. You and I should talk about that at some point in the future. But I just wanted to jump in and mention that um, really compelling stuff. Uh, and also one more name I want to add for you, uh, for your notes. Um, that you probably do not have on your radar that I do just by virtue of all the litigation I've been doing. And that name is, um, I'll just give it to you right now, then I'll go away. It's Alan, <laughs> Bur it's Alan Burson, B-E-R-S-I-N. Um, Alan Burson is a Clinton insider. Uh, I believe he actually introduced Bill and Hillary Clinton um, as their friends. And uh, he works at Covington and Burling with Eric Holder. Um, and I suspect when all this is said and done, uh, much of this discovery is going to show that the architects of everything from the disinformation board to the overarching censorship and everything comes from, it all comes from the same place as where the original position paper on the quote unquote danger of right wing extremists started back in 2009, which is Jan Napolitano. Her group's been running the whole thing. Amazing. Thank you, Jeffrey. Appreciate you. And we appreciate you. Ah, uh, thanks. Um, Bruce, you were yeah. next. And then, Bill, you can go. Thanks, Tracy. I just wanted to say thank you. And thank you to Jill also. Great presentation this evening so far. Um, got a question for Jill. Then I might take this in a little slightly different direction. But, Jill, the last time you spoke a few minutes ago, you mentioned that you hoped sometime in the future criminal charges would be brought and proceedings would be brought to hold people accountable for this, uh, what's been going on in social media. 
Can you expand upon that a little bit? I, I'm having trouble seeing how that would happen since most of this was the government. So the government would have to bring charges against the government, if I understand things correctly. And what's the likelihood or, or how would that really work uh, going forward? Well, you know, they it wasn't just the government th that that did this. There were actors that went um, along with them. Um, uh, for example, the Trusted News Initiative that um, decided early on to 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 carry one narrative and not to veer from it. Um, actually, the question came up from uh, Jan. Yakelniak, I always butcher his name from Epic Times. He was interviewing, um, uh, it, may, it may have been our attorney general, I can't remember, um, several months ago, and he asked that question. He said, you know, are these social, are these news outlets going to be held accountable? Because, you know, it wasn't just the government. The government didn't force, um, you know, news, CNN and all these other news channels to um, to not provide the truth, they they were actively involved in all of this too, without any kind of pressure that I'm aware of from the government to um, to not investigate. There were no there was no fourth arm of the government. <laughs> you know, nobody questioned what was coming out of what, the narrative that they were presenting. So at some point, uh, I I don't know what that looks like. I'm not an attorney. Um, as I mentioned uh, to the reporter this afternoon, I'm a mom. I'm not a doctor. I'm not even in the medical field. I'm a homeschool mom that has just been devoted to this for um, to advocacy for the last several years. So I don't know the the legal ramifications of it. I don't even know how how you would go about it. But at some point, we have to look at uh, the the message that was withheld, the truth that was withheld. And the, the consequences of it, like it's not just a matter of, like I mentioned earlier, it's not just a matter of speech that was suppressed. It was lives that were lost because truth was withheld. So what that looks like, I have no idea. I really don't. Well, thank thank you for that, Jill. And I, and I sure. do I do appreciate that and, and second your, your thought, because if there aren't some type of consequences, yeah. then, then if people just walk away you know, with a slap on the wrist or, or nothing, it's just going to happen again. So I, right. I, I sure hope our government or the people that can bring charges or prosecute do in an inappropriate manner. Obviously, everybody gets their day in court, but there has right. to be some consequences for this other than saying we won't do this again and trust right. us and, and go away. So thank you. Right. Sure. Thank you. Thanks, Bruce. That was great. Hey, Brandon. Uh, Bill, go ahead. I just want to tell you, thank you for what you're doing. Uh, I've been watching and reading uh, a lot of your works, and uh, I'm uh, glad you're here doing what you're doing. And that goes to all of your colleagues that are uh, fighting the same fight. Thank you. Oh, Bill, you're welcome. This, like I said today to my coworkers, uh, this was actually one of the first times that I've been like actually physically on site doing coverage for a, a case that I'm following. And I said, this is it. Like, this is why I do what I do. I was so invigorated by it and the experience of it and just being able to observe it for everybody and then hopefully do a good job of conveying that back to everyone. Because, you know, I, I was blessed that somebody stepped forward and said, you're talking about this too much. I'm sending you there. Right. Um, because I wouldn't have been able to go otherwise. And so it's community and it's pretty amazing. So thank you so much for that. Adam, go ahead. 
Yeah. It, <clears throat> it just uh, struck me because we kept talking about Covington and Berlin and uh, the disinformation board. You know, Michael Chernoff, who is with Covington and Berlin, he was the one who was tagged to take over the disinformation board after Nina Jankowitz had to resign. Really? Yeah, I just thought that was interesting, and it, and it, and I'm reading a CNN article as my orcas who asked him to, to take over. So interesting. I, I, I just thought that that was some weird connections. Yeah, nothing's ever by accident, dude. Ever. That's super yep. interesting. Um, can you like signal that to me so that I don't forget? Yeah, we'll do. Thank you, Adam. By the way, if people don't know, Adam here is single. Um. <laughs> But other than that, Very he also sick. writes for Uncover DC, and he's a brilliant mind when it comes to legal stuff as well. We kind of tag team on stuff a lot. Some of you might have seen um, a late night tweet I put out a couple weeks ago trying to find Adam a girlfriend. Um, so that's our running joke now. Um, he's in he's in the North Carolina area. If anyone's interested, and he's he's quite the catch. Um, so I'm <laughs> just saying, Jeffrey, go ahead. Oh, I was just going to add in, by the way, that that makes complete sense because Chertoff works for Napolitano's group. He works for um, their DC uh, consulting organization. They think he, uh, he's a, a very low ranking member of their social group, which which I used to know as well. But they think he's a joke. They call him Kermit the Frog um, amongst themselves. I'm probably one of the few people in the country that knows that because of the way he talks. Um, but they do. I've heard it myself. And uh, it, makes, it makes complete sense that... Uh, uh, they would have named him because just like they control Chertoff, uh, I'm sorry, just like they control Mayorkas, they control Chertoff 100%. Interesting. Just see, I need to make my web. I need my whiteboard and my lines at this point. Um, I'm going to say game tech politics. It is your chance to uh, speak. Hello, Tracy. Thank you for the mic. I really appreciate it. I'm going to be brief. Um, I just jumped in here and heard the whole Adam spill. Hi, Adam. Uh, I'll slide into your DMs. No, I'm just joking. <laughs> <laughs> I'm a straight guy. <laughs> but uh, Tracy, uh, I just I just came into the room and I wanted to, if you could uh, oblige me, um, could you possibly give me a summary of uh, the topics that you guys talked about this evening? I appreciate you so much. I, and I, I genuinely do love your work, by the way. Oh, thank you so much. Yeah, I can give a summary. There's probably a bunch of people that came in late. Um, I know Gateway Pundit came in late. So today was the hearing for a temporary injunction to stop the government and other organizations that accept taxpayer funding from coercing, encouraging, colluding with, pressuring, or otherwise acting to have social media companies censor American speech. And the hearing was in a case called um, Missouri v. Biden, which many people at this point have said is probably one of the most consequential free speech cases or civil rights cases in our history in this country. Um, and there's been about a year's worth of litigation so far. The states of Louisiana and Missouri have su sued the government, along with some private plaintiffs, one of whom is joining us here in, in Jill and um, Jim Hoft, who is the owner and operator of the Gateway Pundit, is also an individual plaintiff on this lawsuit, as is Dr. Jay Bhattacharya and Dr. Aaron uh, Cariardi. Um, and they're, they're suing the government for censoring speech um, through pressure or coercion. And so it's been a year. The judge had granted expedited discovery and um and depositions of some very high-ranking government officials and 
they got that limited discovery. And it's been a year of going back and forth trying to get to this point, which is the hearing today, where the judge heard evidence and argument to decide whether he's going to grant this temporary injunction. It just so happens that this judge is based as hell and is really, really smart and um, very much a steward of the Constitution. And he has pretty much, and Jill, you can correct me if I'm wrong, outside of a few different little minute things, rolled, ruled in favor of the plaintiffs in this case every time. Oh, yes, absolutely. Um, there's maybe one time he the, the president was removed. Um, I'm not sure what the legal term was for that. Um, and he made us choose, uh, he gave us a list of um, defendants to... Uh, depose at one point, uh, I think it was a list of about 10 defendants, and he gave us a choice of three of those. But otherwise, he's been very obliging. (laughs) He has. And, you know, the the other thing is a lot of the times, like, he made decisions that were score, Mm -hmm. and the government appealed up to the Fifth Circuit. And even the Fifth Circuit in this case, honestly, Mm -hmm. has been very fair and accommodating, Um, just offering guidance to the judge rather than outright ruling um, that the judge must do something, which I thought was pretty interesting because it doesn't usually roll down that way. Um, But so they've been fighting against who gets deposed, against what information needs to be, you know, um, provided, et cetera, so on and so forth. And this was kind of the pinnacle today of, of the government arguing their, their side, which is really weak and, and, you know, government-like and the plaintiffs arguing their side in favor of this temporary injunction, which will stop the government from doing what they are doing right now and continue to do until the case goes to trial and there's a verdict in that trial and the government is obviously poised to appeal. Um, they requested a stay in the case um, to, like, a stay in the injunction, I'm sorry, once once the judge rules on it, if he does rule in plaintiff's favor, so that they can appeal the, inju- the, uh, the temporary injunction, which, if you are the government, in my opinion, you don't really want to appeal something that, that, like, it's basically saying they're admitting that they're doing what, what they're being accused of doing. Cause why would you want to appeal it if it didn't matter? Um, so that's my, you know, my kind of philosophical view on it, but that's basically what we're talking today. I was in the courtroom for the hearing and I wanted to bring everyone up to speed on what happened. Go ahead game. Okay. One follow-up question. Uh, what is the, what, uh, how did the Biden administration respond? What are the, uh, positives for the Biden administration out of this, uh, courtroom and then one more thing if you followed me i would be head over heels over that thank you so much i'm going to drop down i'm going to continue listening but uh again i I genuinely think that you are one of the top reporters and and top journalists in the country hands down thank you so much for doing what you're doing and uh, again i'm really interested in the positives for the biden administration on this case thank you for your kind words that's very nice of you i appreciate that very much um so positives for the Biden administration. Uh, the Biden administration's argument is, yes, we're doing all of this, but it doesn't matter. Mayonnaise! 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 Mayonnaise. I muted uh, that, that. Sorry about that. Um, 
the positive for the Biden, the, the Biden administration is arguing they're doing all of this and the potential harm it may cause outweighs the reasons why they're doing it. And they're also arguing that they're not coercing the social media companies to the extent that it would cause them to act like they're waffling between a few different positions. Um, but they're basically arguing that what they're doing doesn't doesn't break any any rules or 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 you know impinge on the first amendment in any way um we know that that's not true but that's their argument and the judge really hasn't given them any there's no positive for the government the judge is very clear on what's going on and and hasn't jill do you agree yes i totally agree i i don't see i i don't know how they can spin this into a positive for <laughs> for them yeah, the ju- I mean, the ju- like a lot of people are like, well, what's the difference? And silence, I'll let you speak in just a second. Um, mm-hmm. What's the difference between this and any other lawsuit that's come before a judge? There are a year's worth of differences. And that's why mm-hmm. I'm, I'm, you know, I'm very realistic about court cases and, and their success and chance of success and whatever. Just just breaking, by the way, Carrie Lake, um, they filed for sanctions in the Carrie Lake case, and I just received an order. The judge ruled against the sanctions, so no sanctions for Carrie Lake or her attorneys in their case in Arizona. Um, but th- this judge has given us a year's worth of history to know that this case is different from, say, a Carrie Lake case, where it appeared as though the judge was very forthright and honest, um, but it ended up that that he actually really wasn't forthright and honest. This judge has given us ruling after ruling after ruling that has shown us where his idea, where his mindset is and what he thinks about the trajectory. And that's why I'm paying such close attention. And that's why I'm so positive about the outcome. Um, go ahead, Silenced. And then Creon, you can go after. Yeah, yeah. So it just seems like everything the government says, says it's really just the opposite is true. So you know, while they're arguing the potential harm from what they consider to be misinformation, which, for example, me talking about my vaccine injury, I, you know, uh, I cannot tell you how many times I have been deplatformed and censored and um, particularly on Facebook for just sharing my story, true story, acknowledged story of my vaccine injury. So, yep. so you have in the audience, you have John Bowden. If you don't know him, John Bowden has been going through um, all of the Massachusetts and I think Vermont and, and many other death records. And he can prove by that the harms, the deaths that he has it, the records that show if the information had not been censored, this, you know, 14 year old girl would not have died or that who had, you know, I, I don't know the ages or the names and I wouldn't repeat it if I did, John Ken, but, but, you know, and then the information was miscoded as a COVID death to try to hide it for whatever reason as a vaccine injured. And then, you know, a week later, a, a, a seven-year-old child died after receiving a vaccine of the exact same, you know, thing. So the the harm from the um, the censoring is very easy to prove. And John has it all laid out. In, in the medical records, if you, you ever know, need it. One, I, I, I mean, I, that, I've been following that, albeit at, at a very surface level, but it's, it's amazing work. Um, one of the things that, that 
One of the things that was the most tragic for me, Silenced, is going to go in your direction right now. It was that Rob Flaherty was pounding on Facebook about people who were sharing true stories of their vaccine side effects, adverse events, and injuries. And Facebook was like, we're being told by by folks on team that it's not a good idea to censor these things, that we should let them speak. And for two reasons. One, the more we censor, the more red flags it's going to raise and it's going to have the opposite like Streisand effect. And two, these people need someplace they can go and, and, and speak their mind, right? But what they decided to do was de-boost and ban, for lack of a better word, people like you who were sharing their experiences, who had formed groups for community to support one another, who had found a place where they could not feel like they were completely crazy and they could get some help. And Facebook, at the direction of Rob Flaherty, created a policy that would make it so that your tree in the middle of the forest, if it fell, nobody would be there to see it or hear it. And that was the most disgusting, horrible, terrible thing that I have found in this lawsuit is the absolute silencing of people who were so harmed by something so terrible just so that they could maintain this air of stopping people from being vaccine hesitant, which if you were listening at the beginning of the space, I said was not the government's place in the first place. We all know that. It wasn't their place to step in the middle of informed consent on behalf of a predetermined narrative like they had. So, Creon, you can go ahead now. Um, okay, thanks a lot. Sorry sure. if this was already covered because I had to step away for a couple minutes. Um, I'm wondering if you can say what is the goal here? And what I mean by that is in this case, what is the desired outcome from your perspective and the um, implications of the desired outcome should it come to pass? The, and I'm sure Jill, Jill can speak to this also, but the, the desired outcome is to bar the government from colluding with social media companies to censor American speech at all, period, end of story, or by using taxpayer-funded non-governmental organizations to do the same. Um, will they find a way around it? We've discussed on the space today what the World Health Organization is, is doing with PRET and things like that. They probably will. But under court order, it will bar the government from colluding with social media companies to censor Americans. That's the um, outcome. If it is approved as a class action, it will then and they win, which it you know, it'll be appealed all the way up to the SCOTUS either way. But if the, whoever ends up winning, if it is the plaintiffs that win, it will then open an avenue for Americans who have been harmed by this action the government took to sue for punitive damages. So that's that's it in a nutshell. Um, I hope that answered your question. Yes, that does. Thank you very much. And um, if I may have a follow up, um, what is? It seems like you're you're fairly optimistic, or at least pleased with the uh, recent events. Um, what's next? And what do you think will happen next? Um, well, first, Jill, did I do a good job explaining of what the what what you're seeking as your remedy? Yes, perfect. Okay. Um, what's next is the judge will rule on this this um, motion for preliminary injunction that's in front of him right now, which will temporarily stop the government from doing all of those things that I mentioned. 
and then he will rule on the motion to make this a class action and then they will set some sort of a time tale, a time timetable for the rest of the case to go on so discovery etc so on and so forth and now that i'm thinking about this and i've wanted to make a point that i didn't make yet i think the real reason they're pushing against this temporary injunction is because this case is going to take at least another year, if not more, and it'll lead us right through the 2024 election. Um, and that is detrimental for all of the reasons the government admitted today. Um, Jill, anything you want to add? No, I'm glad you brought back the 2024 election because the the when they were talking today about, you know, how this was stale and how it hadn't, um, you know, it, it was happened in the past. Again, it's going to happen in the future. It's because we haven't had an election. Granted, we had the midterms, but we haven't had a presidential election in four years. So the whole argument was rather was rather stale, if you ask me. <laughs> yeah, and also, also we have, I mean, ongoing recent revelations of, uh, I believe, similar collusion on climate matters and similar deboosting and censorship on that and it's included of course, yeah, oh really well i mean but it's more of it is coming to light so that's hardly stale because it just came to light some of it um mm -hmm. and then secondly uh and this is speculative of course you know i'm sure there's going to be all sorts of collusion against rfk so we i'm really glad to hear that the 2024 is um in the uh strategy here um and then i guess Oh, no, I'll give it a rest. I've talked enough. Thank you. I, I agree with you on RFK. A hundred percent. It's going to be worse than Bernie Sanders. A hundred percent. Yes. And um, separately from that, the climate stuff that you mentioned, they, they made a point today. Plaintiff's attorneys made a point to bring up the fact that it has expanded the way you're, you're, you're saying um, with climate, with gender ideology and with a, a number of other topics, because that was one of the things they used to bolster the argument about ripeness that the defendants were making. Like, this isn't happening anymore. There's nothing to worry about. We stopped doing all this. So good points all around. Um, and thank you. Go ahead, Gene. I'm so sorry for dropping down, come back and up, because uh, you triggered a, a question that I had. Um, is there any evidence um, that the plaintiffs uh, uh, presented uh that had anything to do with like the Hunter Biden stories or, or any other. Oh yeah. Okay. Uh, well, uh, to follow up, there is a Hunter Biden story that I want to pass on to you. I'll, I'll DM you about that story. I think that if you take in and you do your due diligence and look through this, you'll see that it's, it's, it's a, an absolute remarkable story. Um, just a, a two second summary, Hunter Biden invested in a pandemic response company since 2014. Uh, there's receipts on this, and I would love for you to kind of just delve, take 15 minutes and delve into it because it's it's absolutely fascinating. Thank you so much. Nothing I do takes 15 minutes. Come on now. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I, I actually researched this for about two years now, and, um, you know, oh. it's, it's okay. crazy. Um, Metabiota. You take 15 minutes, Tracy, for the work that I've done for the past two years, and you'll know. <laughs> I understand. I understand completely. But again, on this on this uh, particular issue, um, I, I can't wait to hear more about uh, this case, uh, especially uh, please host another space about this topic because it's, it's very it's, it's one of the most important spaces 
so retweet this space guys because this this has a big impact and, and her reporting is is phenomenal so thank you tracy again thank you uh thank you health for bringing me back up um and tracy if you don't mind please check your dm from me it's it's about the metabiota and hunter biden uh story it's it's you, it really is big uh george webb's even uh spoke on this as well Okay, I'll take a look at it for you for sure, but it might not take me 15 minutes, so just putting that out oh, that, there That's you. fine. That's <laughs> fine. I appreciate it. Okay. Awesome. Thank you. Um, you know what? I'm going to – hold on. I'm going to take some folks who've been speaking down just so that I have room to bring some folks up. Katie, do you mind? Sorry, Katie. You can come back up. Just request again. Okay. You can drop me. No, you're staying. Okay, go ahead. We the people. Go ahead. Hey, Tracy. Thanks, and uh, hey, love all the work you do, and and your show with Frank, and all of it. Uh, you're a rock star. Just oh, want to say you. that. <laughs> I'm and, blushing. Uh, yeah, no, I love what you guys do. I missed your shows this uh, today. It sucked you didn't have a show, and I miss a lot of this. I'm kind of jumping in here, and I, I figured it was light on speakers. I jump in and. With that injunction, so does that assume they're allowed to do what they're doing now? They're continuing to do what they do. And if they were to get the injunction, what enforcement is it? And is it a whole other trial? So if they find them doing this in May of 2024, is, what's the remedy? Is, is it yep. immediate action? You know, what's funny. I asked that question because so many people ask me, well, who's to say they're not just going to keep doing it, Right. Um, and, and there's a couple different frame ways to frame that or look at it. Number one, yes, there is action that can be taken contempt prison for contempt. Um, if they violate the injunction in the midst of the injunction, they'll be in the middle of in, um, ongoing discovery. So as, as the case is going on, discovery will be being produced and, you know, they'll, they'll be able to snuff that out. So solicitor general from Missouri said, um, again, his name is Josh Devine. I asked him this question and he said, uh, the government is, is going to have to think long and hard about whether or not they want to um, impinge on a federal district court judge judge's temporary injunction. And then the next point to consider is if the government does abandon the injunction and do whatever it wants anyway, we have a lot bigger problems than just freedom of speech being impinged in this country or impugned in this country, because that would mean that that there is no check and balance anymore between the judicial and the executive. Um, and we that's that's a, a universe that I mean, frankly, we may be in right now, but just a, a lot more covertly. I wouldn't want to be in a country where that's the case. So it's just a bigger problem than just this, if yep, that's. Yep. What's yeah, I mean, I mean, J6, we're there. We, we all agree with that. But, hey, a quick follow-up to that. What about forcing government disclosure? But, like, you just said J6, like, we're all there on that. Can you just clarify what you mean by that? No, I'm just saying that, that we've crossed that line where the judicial is doing whatever they want. There's, there's no rule of law that's being applied to that, the entire um, application of, of uh, you know, the – sentencing everything yeah. you, you name it i mean you, not, you don't, I don't have discovery you, you don't have full discovery so you don't have full access to all the tapes of course I, like rudy giuliani was just you know shame shamefully it's so sad time magazine's man of the year america's mayor rudy giuliani is being sued and i don't know if you guys actually read that court filing 
Yeah, hey, can Bye, you hold on one second? You won't just because I, I wanted to get this other because it's it's a stream of consciousness to go back sure. to. So, Tracy, the question I have is is and this goes just the overall suit, and I, I've read a lot of your stuff, but this is the one component that the government not releasing information. And, and as an example, right before 2022, we now find out that in May of 2022, we knew about Biden's document. Um, issue right and 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 then they there was another drop they found out in I guess like February and then you have the election or hold on I, I it was May and then I think it was sometime around I, I forget what the timetable is but it goes back as far as May before the 2022 midterms that they knew about documents that Biden had and then they had the raid in August and then they waited a month and a half after so if you go Almost seven months, they knew that Biden had a document issue. They do a raid in August. My question is, is any part of this suit forcing government to release information as it pertains to elections like that? I mean, that, that's just as bad as you know, withholding the New York Post, you know, wiping that off of the Internet in, in October, of 20, you know, October 27th, right? That's just as bad. And, and that's part of this case, too, right? Yes, Um I, I think I understand what you're asking, so I'll answer it from what I think you're asking, and then you can correct me if I'm incorrect. Um, there was a period of time in this case where CISA wouldn't produce information, and they were able to see that they were holding back information based on other discovery in the case. So, for example, the social media companies are forced to provide information to the government as, or to the, the plaintiffs as well. And from looking at what the social media companies provided, they could tell that CISA was withholding. So they went to the judge and said, hey, judge, CISA is not giving us this information. And here's how we know. And then CISA was forced to hand the information over that they were withholding from discovery. Um, similarly, like... And this is just going to bridge off into something else that I made meant to make a point about. The social media companies, solicitors general said this today, the social media companies are in a really bad spot because if they agree with the government that, yes, they were taking all of these actions on their own, they open themselves up to Section 230 litigation immediately because they're then taking on the uh, the responsibility for editorializing um, people's speech. If they don't, the government's in a shitload of trouble. So the social media companies here are kind of like in the middle. What's in their best interest is private companies versus what's in the government's best interest. That aside, there has been instances already in this case where the government's withheld, um, withheld discovery. And I just think it's going to be a lot harder in this case because of the multitude of, of defendants. There are, Jill, is it 96? Uh, I think it's around 85. Oh, okay. 85 defendants in the case. 85. Mm -hmm. Yes. I just want you to know how proud I am of you. And oh. Adam's a cat, <laughs> so go after him. <laughs> That's my mom. <laughs> mama Beans is my only true love. That's great. <laughs> Thanks, Mama. <laughs> oh, that's funny. My mom is a, a woman of very few words, so it's, it's kind of stunning she came up here to 
say that. Um, thanks, mommy. I appreciate it. Um, yeah. So, so will it happen? Probably, but I don't think that they're going to be able to coordinate enough to be able to make that a, uh, a plausible avenue. Does that make sense? Yeah. I'm just, you know, I'm, of course we all want remedy to force the government. Like if you look at the laptop, you know, you look at the timeline of the laptop and documents, right? Just those two timelines. And you look at the government's suppression of information when they got it, right? So they knew in May that Biden had documents he shouldn't have. They knew it in May. We didn't find out till January after the midterm that they also found another allotment, a second allotment, right before the midterms as they raided a president. So if you, if you put that on a timeline and look at that, it, it looks really fishy, okay? And then we go back to the laptop. And when I say the laptop, I mean during the impeachment. So yep. forget about the, the – we're not even at the election at this point. We're in 2019. That laptop lands uh, December of 2019 with the FBI. We're right in the middle, and it's got data on it that would exonerate him. Out of The Ukrainian thing would have been blown back the other way had fat-ass, uh, gnome-looking <laughs> freaking AG – would have stepped up, right? And and I, I'm just that's part of that too. But again, it, it it's a it's a, I guess it's just a you know twice is a, I, I can't think of the word. You know, I, I mean it's it, it's a it's a pattern that our government has done with the FBI, and then you go back to suppression of information in 2016. So you got three events that changed the course of America. I'm just wondering, is there a remedy there for us as Americans, as, as we the people? That's not on trial. Right, right. So, and in terms of this case, no. But I will say, you called Bill Barr a gnome. Why is it that Donald Trump picks co uh, cartoon characters to be his AGs? First, we had a Keebler elf. In right. session. I, I actually meant like a hobbit. He's more of a hobbit. <laughs> <laughs> Frodo. Frodo. I can see him living in a little cave in a hill in Ireland somewhere. Oh my gosh. Oh Scumbag. goodness. I, I hate that guy. That that right there was, you know, the crutch. I mean, that was the Achilles heel. He he protected all all and, and you know, when you found out that he was writing executive orders for Biden, I don't know if you read that story. I mean, for a month before inauguration, Bill Barr was writing all the executive orders that were signed. His team helped write all those. Just terrible, terrible um, appointments in a lot of cases. So, yeah, it's it's sad. It really is. Um, but, I mean, it happens. There's not a very big pool of people. So, um, okay, hold on. We've got. But just William... to wrap up, th thanks again for what you do. Like I said, really appreciate you. And uh, I'm, I'm a very, uh, uh, what, what do you call it? religious, uh, you know, listener of your show uh, and, and all your stuff. So thanks again. Thank you. I appreciate you. Good questions. And you're awesome. Keep watching. <clears throat> <laughs> um, William, go ahead. That's that Frank and beans. That show I listened to. Dark oh, I'm, I'm going to mute him before her. he says something bad about me. <laughs> oh, this is just a very stimulating conversation. So thank you, uh, Tracy. I uh, just, just two thoughts. One is uh, there's got to be just, just mount, a mountain uh, of Brady rule violations uh, that, you know, the government is in violation of, I'm, I'm thinking 
the J six thing, this, this thing with uh, Fauci and, and the um, suppression of speech. And then also too, on a similar note to what the other gentleman was mentioning about timelines, you know, this has been going on at least since 1992 when Lawrence Walsh uh, on the eve of the uh, presidential election, 1992, I uh, got an indictment for, I think it was Weinberger. It was in October of 92. And that was, you know, kind of through that election in a sense that uh, the independent, you know, you had three people running. Uh, and then that eventually that was dismissed after the election and, and Clinton, you know, won the election. So just that's my comment. And thanks again for putting this on. Oh, sure. Sure. I wish I need to catch up on my 90s politics. I was in my teens. I was 12 in 92. And it's crazy because I have home videos. We used to like pretend we were news anchors and I would always bash the Clintons in my news reports, even in my early teens. <laughs> I have to find. Yeah, it was, it was in the Wikipedia. If you go to Wikipedia, it's independent. It's Lawrence Walsh and it says October 30th. But I remember that because it was, you know, Ross Perot and, and Ross Perot's wife had been on the board of Planned Parenthood of Texas. So some folks had speculated, well, was he, are they doing this so they won't have, you know, Bush in there? Because Thomas had just been confirmed, I believe it was in October of 91. And so it, there's, you know, no, I don't know for sure, but I do know that his wife was, Ross Bro's wife was on the board of Planned Parenthood. And that whole thing with Lawrence Wash in October doing that, that indictment, you know, a lot of people think that kind of threw it uh, to Clint. So anyway. Interesting. Okay, cool. Oh, we've got another plaintiff here. Dr. Curiati's here. Curiati's here. Welcome. You're welcome to speak. We were just di dissecting the case with um, with Jill here. Thanks, Tracy. Carry on. I'm uh, eager to hear your updates. <laughs> you missed it all. I know you. You've got this news. <laughs> you've got this news before I do. So. I'll let you carry on. It went really well. It, it went really, really well. Um, you know, the judge asked a whole bunch of great questions, um, wanted the government to define whether or not certain statements were protected free speech. The government refused to concede that they were. Um, it, it was just it was a really good hearing. And everybody that I've talked to about it, including the solicitors general from Louisiana and Missouri, are under the... Um, Pretty, pretty firm assumption that the injunction will be granted. So that's it in a nutshell. Um, but the space is recorded. So if yeah. you want to go back and listen to my whole thing, you, you can definitely do that. I will, for sure. For sure. Yeah. And what do we anticipate in terms of, let's suppose the injunction is granted. What sort of enforcement mechanism might the court put in place to... I mean, we're really talking about bringing an entire industry to a grinding halt. I mean, when Schellenberger calls this the censorship industrial complex, the industry part, he means quite literally. I mean, this, there's, so many, um, there's so many private actors involved here that are directly funded by the government, that are working hand in glove with the government. There's at least, what, 11, 12 different federal agencies. There's people working around the clock doing this censorship work there's training i mean there's training institutes at universities to do this kind of work so okay the court grants an injunction and said you know slaps the government 
uh, slaps the government's hands, says you have to stop doing this. Well, I mean, the the Department of Justice is, you know, the executive branch of government is responsible for enforcing the law uh, is among the defendants in this case. So um, was there any discussion of, you know, about what it might look like if the court says, you know, that the, the activities described in the plaintiff's complaint have to stop while the case is being heard? Well, the the one I asked that question, it's a very popular one because nobody believes the government's going to actually do what the court says, um, which is a very sad state of, of affairs. I asked the question um, and it's basically contempt and a jail and a jail sentence doled out by the judge. So there there is a, there is a deterrent to the government mm-hmm. doing that. And given like in my opinion, I'm not obviously an attorney, but in my opinion, given there will be ongoing discovery and there are 85, as Jill just said, or 86 uh, defendants, and it's going to be super hard for any collaboration between them to really be effective with that big of a bureaucracy under the wing. They're going to out each other in discovery if they're continuing, in my opinion. Yeah. So you think um, <laughs> they may just pick a few um you know, fall guys to throw under the bus, you know, they may start cannibalizing one another, one another, if they think that's going to get them off, off the hook. It it will be interesting to see, uh, you know, what kind of behavior develops in this whole ecosystem. If the court starts scrutinizing it, you know, much more carefully. Well, especially because we're coming up on election season, right? They really want to keep doing this. <laughs> so, so yeah, it's going to be interesting to watch because I, it's a, it's, it's almost like, like somebody had mentioned earlier, like the immigration um, injunctions that have been granted over the past like year or two, um, how they're countrywide injunctions. And then the Biden administration just finds some crafty way to get people across the border anyway. Um, this is yeah. a little different than that, but I understand your, your line of questioning um, for sure. And appreciate it and you by the way well thank you likewise i appreciate you've you've done the best reporting on this case um there's been a kind of media weird media blackout um i think mostly because it's not just social media that's involved in this but it's uh it's the newspapers it's the television news um and you know so they're they're not going to out themselves uh but so i i mean you you've been terrific on this whole case and I think it's I think it's probably the most important free speech case in the last generation. And of course, you'd love to think that anything you're involved in is super, you know, world historical importance. Um, but I mean, the fact is, if what we're alleging is true, just the sheer breadth and scope of the, the number of instances of censorship, anything else in American history will, will pale in comparison because, you know, prior to the advent of social media, if the government got entangled in censorship, it was usually with one publisher, you know, or one author or, mm-hmm. you know, one set of, you know, series of, of articles or something like that. Here we're talking about, um, here we're talking about Everyone. tens of thousands of people, individuals being censored. And then, yeah, probably tens of millions of well, hundreds, probably hundreds of thousands of people and tens of millions of, of instances of censorship. And, 
so nothing else that's ever come before the court, uh, you know, alleging government censorship in the United States can even come close to this because it's, it's the first case of this kind uh, in the in the era of this new technology. Yes, actually, that was discussed today in court um, by by plaintiffs and and defendants, Um, both of them saying, you know, like when arguing against the certification for class, the government saying, well, this has never happened before. The Walmart case was the case that had the most defendants. And it was that class was one point five million people. And here we're looking at at 350 million people right. in a class and how are you going to separate them out and, and actually be able to litigate and give remedy? And, and, you know, the point your attorneys were saying, that's not how this is going to work. It's, it's very different. Yeah. Um, so yeah. Um, I'm interested to hear what the gateway pundit has to say too. Hey guys. Hi, Tracy. Howdy. Hey, and Aaron. Um, great uh, Twitter space and Tracy, I echo your mother. You're doing a wonderful <laughs> job. She sounds like a sweet lady. She sounds kind of shy. I don't know what happened to you. Uh, <laughs> I take after my dad. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, thank you for covering this. Um, whenever I want to get caught up, I go to your website, Uncover DC, and, and check it out. You're really doing a fabulous job and uh, a real service for the whole country, Tracy. Um, and I'm going to have to go get the cliff notes later on. I loved all the uh, the discussion uh, that we've, we've heard. You know, in, in my experience at Gateway Pundit, um, after Trump was elected in 2016, Harvard put out a study and Columbia Journalism Review put out studies right away. They wanted to figure out how the heck did this guy win, right? Because, you know, they can't imagine that people would vote for somebody like Donald Trump. And they found that um, conservatives were getting their news from Facebook and Twitter and places like that, and they had to shut it down. So immediately yep. in uh, Gateway Pundit at that time in the studies, we were like number four as the most uh, influential um, uh, uh, outlets that were influencing the election. So in January of 2017, we're immediately, uh, we see our income, we see our um, our traffic from Facebook, from Twitter, immediately is, is getting uh uh, it, completely uh, obliterated. And this went on for several months. I spoke with several people who uh, uh, were very top. Uh, uh, they, they were getting millions of people on their Facebook pages. This is a story that hasn't been told at all. And um, these people, uh, they're, they're gone today. All of these websites that used to promote conservative stories, um, Facebook wiped them out right away. Um, and so it's really interesting. I, I'm really curious when the government got involved, because we know that uh, the, the tech giants were doing this at least going back to January of 2017. Um, we know they had a plan to do that, but I don't know when the government started getting involved. I loved all the comments, too. Yeah, um, I was I was just going to add. I, I love the comments, too, like. Um, Chertoff, who uh, somebody was saying may replace uh, the 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 singing uh, uh, you know idiot who uh, was uh, <laughs> Jankowitz, right, yeah. right, the lounge, the singing, the lounge singer, who uh, I like to talk about how pretty she was, um, and and I thought that was interesting because he was also on this uh, this group called Hamilton sixty eight. 
And yeah, and yep. so so he's and he's he was a, a Republican appointee, um, I believe. Uh, and so it's it's really interesting uh, that a lot of these players get moved around and they're all involved. And and what just shocks me, I mean, we found out another group this week that I had no idea. Um, the uh, Media Research Council and Fox News put up that story about uh, Department of uh, Homeland Security invested $40 million. We're giving uh, the, the, uh, money, and they put out that pyramid you guys saw with the, uh, uh, the, the, the Republicans and Christians, and you, you get to the, the tip of the pyramid is the Nazis or something. <laughs> Uh, yeah, it's 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 unbelievable. And this is a whole nother branch that I had never heard of. Uh, they're spending so much money. We know the Department of Defense was involved. We know the, the Department yeah. of State and we know uh, uh, Homeland Security. We have no idea how big this is. And I think it, that um, the censorship industrial complex is is the exact uh, the right uh, way to express this. But uh, it's it's gigantic. I hope we can get it shut down. It seems like it, it's it's basic uh, First Amendment law, but um, anyway, I'm glad that you're covering it because uh, uh, it's so important for the future of our country. Agreed. Yeah. And just to your point, um, by the way, your attorney for plaintiff today spent a good amount of time saying what you just said and explaining the timeline. They needed to figure out how it was that Donald Trump got elected and realized that he did it using social media. And that's when everything changed. So they made that very wow. argument today on your yeah, behalf. Yeah, it was, it, was it was Trump and Brexit in 2016. Uh, and the social media companies woke up to that very quickly. Um, you know, it was, it was basically an elite contempt for uh, the will of the people. And, you know, so they, they, they started talking about the threat of populism to democracy, which is <laughs> very <laughs> ironic, you know, that... that that the, the people might make the wrong decisions. So democracy is all fine and well um, until something like this happens. It's not supposed to happen. Um, and then, you know, we need to manage democracy from the top by controlling the flow of information. And I, I think the answer to your question about when did the government get involved is not long after the social media companies, at least by uh, 2017. And around that time, we had a in 2016, we had a newly minted government agency, CISA, the Cybersecurity Infrastructure Security Agency. Yeah, wonderful government acronym, right? If you if you wonder what they're what they're doing, the word security is in in their uh, title twice, uh, just in case. Um, and they were set up to protect our digital infrastructure against uh, like cybersecurity type threats, right? That's uh, protect Americans' critical infrastructure from uh, computer viruses or, or hackers and that, that sort of thing, uh, foreign threats. Um, now, CISA or CISA uh, decided around 2017 that an important part of their job was also to protect what they called our cognitive infrastructure. Now, you might, want, you might be wondering, okay, I know what our digital infrastructure is. What's our cognitive infrastructure? Well, our, our cognitive in infrastructure is the ideas inside of your head. Right. And it's, it's a it's a wonderfully Orwellian euphemism for what people think, what Americans think. And the threats to our cognitive infrastructure are, of course, bad ideas. Right. And that's where you started getting the the 
they didn't want to use this, the word censorship, so they started calling it, you know, managing disinformation. But the whole disinformation, misinformation, malinformation uh, sort of language got going around that time. And so CISA, which was supposed to exist to protect us from cybersecurity threats, decided that protecting our cognitive infrastructure was part of their job. And it was too difficult to, you know, distinguish between foreign and domestic actors in that space. And so, um, so they started violating the First Amendment right away because, you know, the federal government can get involved in censoring information that's coming from abroad under the Constitution, but they can't do that to American citizens. But, but you know, this particular agency didn't really care to try to distinguish between the two. And you had several other agencies making the same pivot from, okay, our job is to protect Americans from foreign threats to, no, now our job is to protect Americans from internal threats and the internal threats are, you know, are things like, I don't know, homeschoolers or people with the wrong ideas or, you know, the people on that, that pyramid that you described before. So it was, this was getting underway as early as 2017, but it really, of course, it really picked up steam during the pandemic. That's when it just totally exploded. And, you know, to the point that I had said before, somehow we still all managed to find each other. Yeah, that's amazing. Um, I was also going to add, because we went through this for years now at Gateway Pundit, they have silenced and censored and blacklisted and everything. But in, in, in 2017, they just, it would, it would be Facebook that would put this, uh, that, that would decide that our story was not, you know, adequate for their, their audience. So they, they'd start um, censoring our, our content. But then it was um, a couple years later where they started adding, adding these fact checkers. And now we know that these fact checking sites are being paid by the government. Yep. Um, so it, again, was the government involved early on? Probably at some, you know, to some degree. But um, they certainly were when they started funding these uh, these fact check sites that uh, are their only purpose. And I've I've looked at some of these. Um, like uh, a, a good example is NewsGuard, who was getting money <laughs> from the Department of Defense, and they uh, they. Uh, uh, what, what they say that they're, um, you know, uh, that they're not, uh, they have no bias, uh, it, you know, they're not partisan. And, and yet, if you look at their website, they're only focusing on top conservative um, outlets. And, I've dealt and, with NewsGuard. They're such pleasant people over there. <laughs> they're, they're, well, you know what's interesting, too? Um, when they sent us a list of questions, it would take a lawyer um, three or four days to go through all these questions. It really makes me doubt that they're writing those questions, these, these young graduates who work for them. Um, um, it makes me think that obviously, uh, and this is just, I have no proof of this, but I just uh, you know suspect that these are, government is giving them the questions. Somebody is, maybe one of these big liberal think tanks, is writing out all the questions that they want to give Gateway Pundit. It was a waste of our time, but it's yeah. interesting. They're not doing this to the to the mainstream media. I mean, you compare, um, Tracy, our reporting in the past four or five years compared to the mainstream media, and there's there's no question who has been more accurate um, from uh, on every major story, right? Um, and so, but they're not getting flags. The New York Times isn't getting a flag for the Mueller report for the the fifty one you know 
uh, honorable Intel agents who signed the the letter against, uh, uh, you know, saying it was Russian disinformation with Hunter's laptop. They're not getting any of those flags. It's only conservatives. So this was completely targeting conservative. Uh, a few minor liberal outlets and unfortunately someone like um, Robert F. Kennedy, who's been just outstanding. But uh, otherwise, it's just it's, it's, it's a complete focus, like you were saying, Aaron, against the, the populist movement and against ordinary Americans. That's right. And th- I mean, the way that operation works, their purpose is to tie you up in trying to argue with them. You know, they, so they, they take some, you know, exactly three seconds to slap a fact check notice or whatever on something that you've published. Oh, but you can appeal and, you know, we'll go through a fact finding process. So they send you a list of questions that's going to tie your staff down for who knows how long um, you try to respond to them. You try to, you know, you, you behave as though these are people that are acting in good faith and actually interested in things like facts. Um, you know, and maybe you go through several iterations of that for several weeks and maybe mm-hmm. in the end of the day, they, they remove their little thing. And by that time, the story's already dead, right? It's people have moved yeah. on and, you know, the, the, uh, that the false information that was allowed to accumulate and, you know, hasn't been answered because those people all got fact checked um, and de- deprioritized in search results and all the rest of it. You know, it doesn't matter anymore if they remove it. Their, their whole point was to was to get in your way and tie you up long enough for the news cycle to move on. It's just classic CIA information control tactics. I mean, this stuff is you know, this stuff was developed by our intelligence agencies uh-huh. um, in the decades following World War II. It's been going on for half a century. That's brilliant, Aaron. You know, I can tell you that uh, I did hire someone to just do fact checks for us for a while. And that person today is a full time employee doing doing fact checks and other things. And yes. uh, so, so it's exactly what you're saying. We also, uh, by the way, hired a lawyer full time um, because uh, of the lawfare that we continually go through too. So this is what we have on the, on the conservative side. This is what you have to go through. This is what you can expect if you, if you get large enough or you're a big enough threat. Um, yeah, that's right. And uh, it, it, again, this is our own government. Now we understand not just the tech giants, but the government also coming at us. It's uh, it's, it's something I know Adam had his uh, hand raised a minute ago. Yeah, I, I, I just wanted to expand on something that Jim said because I can kind of speak to it. Um, in addition to uh, writing for Uncovered DC, I write for a publication called The Washington Pundit. Now we uh, we were never we never had as big a footprint as Gateway Pundit or, or Uncovered DC or anything like that. But we were pretty we had a pretty big following on Facebook, um, and we had some stories went viral. It was a cash positive business. Um, And then suddenly BuzzFeed wrote a hit piece on our publication and our founder, they labeled us QAnon and we were, our website was simultaneously attacked um, by hackers and it was kept down for the better part of a year and it completely wiped out that guy's business. So that our publication is one of those ones that Jim was talking to one of the smaller conservative that just basically got wiped off the internet. In the middle of, in, yeah, it's really, it's really terrible. Um, I want, I want to ask Aaron, when did this stuff all hit you? Like, did you always feel this way and think this way, or did you just become wise to it with COVID? 
No, I mean, it was really, it was really during the pandemic. It was my own experience during the pandemic um, because I was following, I was a director of the medical ethics program at the University of California in Irvine and was working with the UC system on COVID related policies. And so it was deeply, deeply entrenched in fighting the pandemic. Um, worked every day of the pandemic, even during lockdowns here in California. I was in, in the hospital, uh, you know, seeing patients, many of them dying of, of COVID. I knew what was going on. I knew what was going on on the front lines. I knew what was going on in the research literature. I knew what was going on in the decision-making progress uh, process on COVID-related policies at institutions like hospitals. Um, and, you know, I mean, I had, I had a, a frontline view of the whole pandemic. I was very well informed. And yet I was shocked that, first of all, our policies were uh, based on really no evidence. Um, and if you started speaking out against harmful policies like school closures, which were unnecessary, or lockdowns, which went on far too long and did far more harm than, than good in the end. Um, and then the thing that actually ended my academic career at the university was uh, challenging the university's vaccine mandate in federal court. Um, and so as I started being more public about, you know, writing and speaking, sharing things on social media, including just sharing information from the research on the pandemic, um, I started being censored. <laughs> it was, it was very strange because I know I'm being censored by people who have absolutely no idea what they're talking about. Mm -hmm. um, um, they're not, they're not qualified to make a judgment on my, my opinions uh, or my assessment of the scientific literature. Uh, but even if they were, that's, you know, that's not how you carry on a scientific debate. And I saw other highly credible scientists who are now friends, you know, Jay Bhattacharya and Mark Koldorf, who two are my, th those two are co-plaintiffs in this particular lawsuit. Um, you know, they were, they were getting crushed by the system. And so I had to do a deeper dive to figure out what was going on. Um, you know, I ended up publishing a book last year called The New Abnormal, where it's trying to trying to understand what were the social um, and political and economic forces that were driving us in such self-destructive directions during COVID um, and the trampling of civil liberties and the, the Constitution being basically bracketed by this ongoing state of emergency. And clearly, I mean, to, to me, clearly one of the centerpieces of that whole operation was, was censorship. Now, when we filed Missouri v. Biden, um, you know, we had some evidence of government collusion, but the Twitter files hadn't come out yet. We hadn't gotten our documents on discovery yet. You know, we just had some whispers from the White House about, you know, how they were cozying up to social media. And we had enough evidence to file the suit. Uh, because, you know, it was clear that the government was actually bragging about what they were doing and what they were bragging about was clearly unconstitutional. But it's, it's really as this case has unfolded that um, I and you know, the other investigative journalists like you, um, Taibbi, Schellenberger, the, you know, the guys that are now digging into this um, really started uncovering the anatomy of the, of the whole thing. And it's just been astonishing to me how long it's been going on again, probably two, 2016, 2017, how, how much of it has been going on behind the scenes, how vast the whole enterprise is and then how many Americans have been affected. And, and I'll just say one more thing um, because, you know, you, you might be on here listening and you might be a person who doesn't, you know, 
use social media other than to read what other people say, you know, so you personally may not have been censored on social media, but the Supreme Court has made it very clear in previous First Amendment free speech cases that the right of free speech for Americans exists not just for the person who is speaking. That's important. But it also exists for the person who is listening. In other words, even if you weren't personally censored by this regime on social media, you have been potentially harmed by this regime because as an American citizen, when you go on Twitter, when you go on Facebook, when you look something up on, on the internet or search on Google, you have the right, if it's a debated issue, to hear both sides of the debate, right? You have a right, if it's an you know, ongoing, evolving scientific issue, to see what different voices are saying. Because that's how science, science develops. And that's how people you know, get, get information and, and form their own opinions. So what we had during COVID was the projection of a false scientific consensus on bad policies, whereas there, were, there was no consensus. It's just one side of that debate was suppressed um, by the censorship regime and by other social forces that were silencing or, uh, or, or firing or you know, sidelining anyone who was challenging the whole regime. So I think it's just important for all Americans to understand that whether or not you're writing, whether or not you're publishing, whether or not you're, you know, you've got a microphone and you're putting information out there on a podcast or whatever, you're still being impacted by this. Um, because, you know, you, you, you're an intelligent person. You can make your own judgments. You can form your own ideas. But that requires access to information. And information control does all Americans a disservice um, by basically trying to control what you think in advance instead of allowing you to hear debated uh, or complex or nuanced issues from different perspectives and then, you know, come to your own conclusions. Um, I have so many. That was so awesome what you just said. And, and if, you know, the hearing today incorporated a lot of it. And I think that's a lot of the discussion surrounding whether or not the judge will grant this class action or this class uh, distinction to the suit has to do with one of the classes being the people that you just mentioned, the people that can't listen because of the censorship that was, um, you know, that was, that was placed on everybody. Um, there was another point that just completely left my brain that the judge said in, in relation to that as well, um, that had to do with the arbiter of truth and who the arbiter of truth is, is it, is, you know, is it the government? Is it not the government? The government was wrong a lot of the time about what they were saying. And, and it had to do with Americans being able, Oh yes, it was Jill. It was, uh, what's her name from CISA, Jenny Easterly saying it would be really, really bad if Americans got to pick their own facts. That's something she literally said in a text message there you with, go. with her colleagues. There you go. I mean, th this is, you know, she said that perfectly um, innocently, I think. I mean, it, it's it's not that it slipped out accidentally, um, but this is the just the level of contempt that our leadership class and these elites have for ordinary Americans. Um, the experience of ordinary Americans, the intelligence of ordinary Americans, the ability of ordinary Americans to, you know, discern truth from falsehood um, and, and the arrogance 
that they believe they're much more capable in that regard than you are. Um, I mean, it's, it's that statement. It's just so, it's so telling Tracy um, of, uh, of the, the attitudes of the people that are running this show and why, in fact, why they are so, uh, why they're so dangerous or, or at least why their policy um, uh, proposals and their, their defense of this kind of behavior is so dangerous. Agreed. And the good, the good thing about it, as I've said so many times with this case is that the judge sees that too. And if the judge didn't, we wouldn't be at this position where we're at right now. And I just, I, I wanted to just give him a big hug. And I, I told Jill that like, just, just, it, we shouldn't be celebrating justice. It should be just the default in this country. But we're in a place right now where, where you know, we, we have to celebrate justice because it happens so rarely. And, and so far, it has happened in this case that you guys have, have brought forward. We, we should not be jumping up and down that we've gotten here. We shouldn't be. This is not, right. you know, yeah. this is not this normal. This is pretty basic. I think. It's like, it, um, is, it is. And, and you're right. It, it does. It impacts literally every single American, everyone, left, right, whatever. It, it, it impacts everybody. So it's, it's a, of, of serious importance. I, I'm going to keep talking about it until my, my, you know, your ears bleed. And I want to keep everyone up to, to speed with what's going on. Um, does anybody else have any questions from the audience before we call in a night or anything else that anyone wants to say before we leave? Um, all three of you guys, I never expected to have three plaintiffs to the lawsuit joining me, uh, for the space, but I'm so glad that I did. Thank you guys so much for your passion, for fighting for everybody, for doing what you're doing. Um, you know, it, it's so greatly appreciated and years from now, I think we'll look back at this as, as really a pinnacle of when things started to turn around. Um, guys, thank you so much. I hope you share this with your friends, listen back, and I'll keep doing these as we progress and uh, appreciate all you guys. Have a great night. Tracy? Yes. I love you. I love you too, Mom. <laughs> Bye.